So my brother wrote to me this week, Russ. Did he? And, uh, he, he said that, um, he, he commented on our New York accents. He said, um, by, by the way, your New York accents are terrible. You haven't, you obviously haven't been in New York for a long time. And I just want to say to my brother, thank you. <laughs> thank you for the compliment. Okay. They say, I, I just disproved a, an old uh, rule there. You know, they say you can take the uh, man out of New York, but you can't take the New York out of the man. I think, I think I've succeeded in doing that. That's interesting. At the age of 56. Well, I'm I'm from upstate anyway, so yeah. you know I don't think anyone can really pick me as a New Yorker uh, out of a crowd of American voices. Uh, right. So, you certainly sound. don't sound like a New Yorker with that suave uh, baritone you've got going there. No, I don't think I sound <laughs> mid-Atlantic, kind of nondescript kind of thing. So yeah. your brother's saying you don't sound like a New Yorker. Yeah, I don't anymore. sound like a New Yorker anymore. I'm no. not going to do the accent anymore. You don't know what? There you go. Hey, there you go. Finished. <laughs> Finished. Done. All right. But my family, but I got to tell you, my family, they, they never give out compliments, and there it is, a compliment. So there you go. Old, uh, old taboos shattered right there. Thanks, Rich. You're the best. Yeah, thanks a lot, um, Rich. Uh, yeah, he's a, by say. the way, he's also the guy who provided us with the new uh, logo, so thanks for that, That's right. too. Yeah, thanks. Of course. That yeah. is cool. That's right. That is cool, yeah. Now I'm wondering, though, if... You know, we're like fossilized or something, you know. What do you mean? Yeah, we're kind of, I don't know, we're, you know how some people, are, I guess they say they're sexless. I guess we're uh, sort of- Stateless. Um, we're accentless. not stateless, um, accentless. Yeah. Yeah, we could be from anywhere. I don't think we could be from Japan, though. No, we don't sound yeah, Japanese. definitely not. We don't sound Japanese at, at least all. I don't think we do. Yeah. Anyway, thanks for the new logo, Rich. It's really eye-catching. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, it really stands out more than the other one. And thank you, Ephraim Aquino, again for the design. It's really cool. Yeah, we That's like right. the way it, it. It really. We. I was looking at it on um, Apple Podcasts the other day, and it just stands out among all the podcasts I listen to. It's just really this bright pink. It looks great. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Looks really good. Well, hopefully yeah. that'll catch some new eyes for us here on Adult mm. Music, the podcast with music for the mature mind. And here we are to sort of wandering New Yorkers, uh, if we even that anymore. I guess not. Yeah. Well, uh, you're a New York stater. Where, New York where would stater. you be from? Like Rochester? I was, or I was born there? in Albany. I was born in Albany. You were born in Albany? I didn't yeah. even know that. Wow. Yeah. I, thought, I, I thought Rochester, because I think I associated you with uh, Steve Gadd or people like oh. that. <laughs> they were Roche from up there somewhere. Yeah, upstate. Ro well, Rochester had a lot of uh, great musicians You were born in Albany? Wow. I was, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. All those years ago, I've never been to Albany. I've always, oh. kinda, I've always heard really bad things about it. Oh, really? But uh, I've, I was always been curious about it anyway. Well, it's this the seat could be... of the government. Yeah, I'm kind of interested <laughs> in that. You know, this could be a whole different podcast. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. There's good and bad, I guess. Right. Mm. Well, I think because we were from New York, we just thought the rest of New York was terrible. You know, so <laughs> we had all yeah. the best stuff. We thought could that's be. the typical New York, uh, New York City approach to things. Everybody else is awful, and only we're good. You know. <laughs> We uh, we have our own opinions about uh, people that live downstate too. I bet you so, do, especially when they come up uh, for vacation. Yeah. But we don't think as badly about them as we do as the people from Jersey. Oh, really? You think badly about the people from Jersey? 
not me personally, but yeah, but just th- that's I've where my heard. brother lives now, by the way. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so. All right. Well, before we alienate yeah. all of our listeners, yeah, with the New yeah York, all of our listeners are basically we... our family. We don't want them to uh, stop listening. And I won't even get <laughs> so, into what we think about the uh, Canadians coming down from Quebec. So, oh boy, anyway. Quebec. Well, yeah, I like Quebec people. They're okay. Yeah, know. they're okay. Yeah. Nobody likes their neighbors, right? I guess. So. Yeah, I guess. I don't know. We used to. This is a good possible novel title for me. When I was in uh, college, I went to Boston University, and we'd be hanging around Friday night with nothing to do, and like, you know, what can we do? And somebody would say, you know, let's have breakfast in Montreal, and we'd just drive all night to Montreal. <laughs> so it's kind oh, of a wow. good title, breakfast in Montreal. It is a good title. We just drive all night to Montreal and just spend the day there. You know. <laughs> Very picturesque. Uh, try to, to try to breakfast. speak French and all this stuff. Yeah, you know, oh, the good old days. Yeah. Anyway, Are you still we, allowed to go to cross the border now? I don't, I don't know. know. Probably not. Probably yeah. not. Yeah. Well, tonight we're going to get into our usual program of six recent recordings uh, in classical and jazz music. On the Adult Music Podcast here. And before we get into things, I want to remind everyone that uh, in the episode description, you'll find links to Spotify and Apple Music for all of the recordings we're going to discuss. Also at the top of the description, there's a link to the full episode playlist. That's all the music in one place on Deezer, our preferred streaming platform. And you can also follow the podcast there, uh, both the podcast and the uh, playlist are under our username there, Adult Music Podcast. Um, whatever app or platform you're listening to us on, if you don't see all the links and uh, the full description, come on over to our host site, Podbean, where all the links are easy to follow. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please do follow or subscribe on whatever app or platform you listen to us on. If you take a moment to give us a ranking or write a review, that helps us get in the listings in the categories for music and music commentary which helps us grow our audience which we really enjoy and if you'd like to contact us directly with any comments or questions our email address is adult music podcast that's all one word at gmail.com and we'd love to hear from you yeah and please do that we do love hearing from you and answering your questions yeah uh by the way montreal i don't know if you've ever been it's it's incredibly clean and shiny or at least it was back in the day in the 80s but um I imagine it's still like that, though. I, um, mm. what, uh, this is when I still lived in New York. So this was in the 90s. I had a 1978 Cadillac Coupe de Ville with a seven, <laughs> with a so seven, did my dad. Yes, yeah, seven liter engine. <laughs> it was, um, white, uh, the red vinyl top and, uh, white leather seats, you know. And, uh, I used to go up there, go up the north way, just, Put it on cruise control and hmm. go right up to Montreal. Yeah, Californians think they got it all made with Highway One, but no, you <laughs> didn't have, have the breakfast in Montreal, yeah. did you? Okay. Mm. All right. So, I, uh, is that it? Are we just going to get into the music right away now? I, I guess know, so. Seems like uh, there was no real, no, no real stories to tell. I have no. Uh, there, there were a few sort of deaths in classical music this week, and I didn't write them down. I should have done that. Oh. Um, hey, there's a the. Oh, I, sh- I don't want to name them if they don't. Okay, if I didn't write them down, I'm not going to name them. But there was a soprano and a Finnish, um, I don't know if he was a composer, but he's a musician, you know, classical musician. I, mm-hmm. I should have written them down. Anyway, 
I didn't do They'll that. still be dead next week. We can talk about them then. We can't unless somebody else dies and I'll forget again. All right. So here we are back at the oasis that is adult music. And uh, our first classical recording for this week is a bit of an oasis. I thought this was really nice. Um, this is kind of a, a unique um quasi-unique, not very unique, approach to the music of Johann Sebastian Bach, who may be the favorite composer of a lot of um, our listeners, or at least um, people that I know personally. They say they always like to, when we talk about Bach, uh, you, you can really do a whole podcast on just Bach. He's, um, he's so Does anyone like, not like Bach? Yeah, does anyone not like Bach? See, the thing is, when people ask me my favorite composer, it's really weird. My two favorites from the, the Giants... Uh, mm. of of composing or like Mozart and Brahms and I just don't mention Bach just because I just figure he's a given you know right. he's just always there exactly. but yeah I'm always because I'm listening to Bach more often than I listen to either Mozart or Brahms or really both combined because he, he's just so familiar and right. sort of comforting and challenging and all of these things anyway this week we have an album called Sonatas Fantasias and Improvisations J.S. Bach works for flute and keyboard and this is a, um, a, um, an album by two um, musicians who are living in Belgium in Antwerp. Um, one of them is uh, Toshiyuki Shibata, a uh, Japanese flautist. And um, he's from, where's he from? Let's see. He's from uh, Takamatsu in Japan, oh. actually. And he, uh, I'll tell you a little more about him in a minute. Um, and uh, Anthony Romaniuk on the harpsichord and also forte piano and he is australian i couldn't he didn't give a city though <laughs> anyway the two of these guys um you know he kind of traveled around the world shibata's website has his, really his whole story he studied in new york um he, then he he, uh, he did a few other things and he finally wound up in belgium it's funny you play the flute you wind up going all over the world <laughs> and uh you know Anyway, this is—I should mention—this is on the Fuga Libera um, label, and that's um, under the umbrella of Out There Music. I think they also do Alpha and labels like that, and they're based in Brussels, Belgium. Oh, okay. uh, this album came out in uh, January 2022. It's so it's this year. I'm happy to start be starting to get some of this year's records in here. There's right. still some from last year I still want to do, but we'll see. Okay, so this isn't really a straightforward um, flute and um, piano recording. First of all, both um, musicians play two instruments. Uh, Romania, as I mentioned, plays the harpsichord and the forte piano. And Shibata plays um, two types of transverse flute or traverse flute. I, I might have dropped the end there. I'm not really sure. Um, there's, there's, um, they're, they're two modern models after old copies, and they're both wooden flutes. So that it's got that kind of recorder breathy kind of quality to it and uh which i find really enjoyable there's something about hearing the breath in music it's kind of if mm. if you know anything about like you know indian philosophy they they really think the breath is everything and, and i find uh, these much better than the inverse flutes because the inverse they're, flutes? they're really hard to play yeah it's oh hard, yeah it's hard yeah. to read the music upside down when you're oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> that is hard the inverse flute yeah mm. you don't want to play the inverse flute then you're standing on your head yeah. but uh, anyway the notes in the uh, booklet for this uh, release say that the project started is a starting point in gently and i think the keyword is gently here opening up the possibilities of incorporating an element of improvisation into the 
oeuvre. I love that word, oeuvre. You know, the, the, the collected works, basically, the oeuvre of Bach's chamber music. Um, these guys are both improvisers, and the improvisation happens in the ornamentation, basso continuo, or entire passages opened up for, quotation marks, jamming. Wow. <laughs> I really had to, I'm really starting to, I don't know about jamming, but anyway. Yeah. They want to both be faithful to the score and true to themselves as creative musicians interested in mastering the musical language. Okay, so basically you have these two musicians who are, you know, they're classically trained, but they also do improvisational music. And not just like jazz, but like folk music, just the kind of things where you can kind of stretch out on, you know. Yeah. Um, so they're, they're trying to apply that here in certain elements but to be honest this is for the most part a fairly straight ahead recording with uh, a rather relaxed approach to it mm -hmm. I, I heard it is very relaxed and it was um it's a good kind of relax it's not it's you know not unappealing um shibata and romaniuk are both expats like as i said living in antwerp um um shibata it says here studied linguistics at osaka university oh wow wow before moving on to music education in New York. I wonder how his parents felt about that. Uh, he's had quite a journey to early music, and each musician decided to use two instruments in order to broaden the timbral palette, which indeed they do. Um, all the instruments are period instruments on this recording. Okay. So we um, enter into this um, audio adventure with uh, a piece that is credited to Johann Sebastian Bach Anthony Romaniuk and Toshiyuki Shibata as the composers. So they're, they're all like uh, sharing this. Fantasia on a Saraband, and in parentheses, Partita in A minor, Bach Verlag something, <laughs> 1013. I should really know what that means. Bach Verlag or something, 1013. Okay, now basically what happens is there's an opening, and then they play the actual Saraband by Bach with some sort of, um, you know, freely played elements in it so the album opens with uh, the flautist Shibata extemporizing alone and then you hear the serenade the ba oh, sorry not serenade Bach the saraband after that um, once the saraband starts the harpsichord adds a spontaneously realized bass line to his improvised basso continuo chords so that's all new what you're hearing there the extemporization at the beginning is kind of Bachian, it has a kind of Bach melody to it, but it also has a, a kind of shakuhachi quality to it, like the mm -hmm. Japanese instrument, as though like this is kind of in um, Shibata and it's kind of coming out of him. Uh, I heard this in the held notes and the pauses. Uh, we don't really hear many pauses in Baroque music, but you hear like there's a lot of silence in traditional Japanese music. It's not a new thing as it is in cla Western classical music. So he's he's bringing that here, and it really reminded me of. Uh, Japanese music a little bit. It's kind of an odd kind of um, child of um, the illicit uh, bonding of <laughs> Bach and Japanese music, really. Mm. In a good way, though. Okay. The Saraband starts gently with the harpsichord playing almost shyly in the background. Shibata's way up front on this track. This is not always the case, by the way. The balances change with each work and sometimes between movements. Uh, he has a comfortable, warm tone, and it's also got that woody quality that you get from those uh, wooden flutes. I really like the sound of these a lot. Um, it's kind of a big uh, tone, too. It takes up a lot of space. It's not like it's kind of fuzzy around the edges, kind of has like a halo around it. It's not really very 
laser sharp like uh you know like a modern flute would sound um his melodic contours and when he plays these bach melodies curve rather than point what i mean by that is in a lot of bach recordings you have these kind of like hairpin kind of like turns they sound kind of angular um and i think he's able to do that because of the slow tempo all of these um works on this album are played at a slower tempo than normal um and it kind of makes you think well maybe normal is too fast we don't really know Mm. Uh, so the melody is taken at a comfortable contemplative pace and the effect is soothing and lovely I love the gentle way the cadences are realized with a slight slowing and gentle attack on the tonic so right before the cadence the, the tonic chord the, the home key the home chord comes they'll, sli- they'll slow down actually a little m- this is pretty common actually but they do it a lot it's, it's very noticeable and then they'll hit that cadence with this really gentle attack it won't really sound like sudden and final um i thought this very first track is would be lovely for the early morning i would set this uh in your um alarm for the morning and see how it makes you feel for the rest of the day um and i bet the day will go well after that um actually this whole album is kind of a nice i thought of it as a morning disc okay a lot of uh indian ragas are kind of composed to be played at certain times of day and i kind of like to think of certain classical music like that too this is one of them i think this would be good for them i think baroque in general is sounds good in the morning but uh, this this disc in particular for waking up to would be wonderful i think Get especially bach, this first track bach breakfast hmm? biorhythm bach breakfast bach for breakfast oh man yeah it's gonna be one of those weird and biorhythm yeah that's gonna be one of those weird uh compilation cds one day <laughs> Bach for breakfast. You'll have this cereal bowl with notes in it or something. Have that. I don't know. Brahms for <laughs> Brahms for bedtime. And, uh... oh my God. No. <laughs> <laughs> Who else could there be? List for lunch or something. List for lunch. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, it's uh-huh. gone forever. Beethoven for brunch. No, yeah. I don't think so. <laughs> okay. All right. Tracks two through five are Bach, some flute sonata, in E major. BWV 1035. Um, okay, so this is the first straightforward uh, Bach work that we have here. And it's played fairly straight, but uh, again, very slow. And this work starts a Adagio Manon Tanto for the first movement, which is unusual, I think, for a, a Baroque work. They usually start allegro or, or at a fast tempo, but Bach is starting this um, slowly. Um, uh, the flute produces a long-held tone followed by the melodic figure. And the phrasing remi- that he uses here, he may have improvised this. I'm not really sure. I should have listened to another recording of this just to see. But it reminded me of the theme to the Goldberg variations, the way the Goldberg variations oh, okay. starts off right in the first bars. Right. And I never made that association before with this that association uh, before with this piece. I've never made it before. And now I'm wondering if that was part of the improv because uh, maybe it really isn't there. <laughs> <laughs> in the printed score. I should have checked that before I came, but uh, there you go. Okay, Romaniuk is playing his harpsichord in this uh, work, and he's a bit more forward than he was in the opening work, and he shares a bit of the melodic material. I suspect that they made um, Shibata the, uh, the the center of attention in the improv in the first track, and here, because Romaniuk is echo- echoing a lot of um, Shibata's um, material, that they've kind of given him more of a, a spotlight. Um, in this particular piece. Um, even when the triplets come in the flute, they're played in a leisurely way with retards between some of the notes. 
so that the tempo isn't strict, okay? This doesn't really sound like uh, straight-jacketed Bach. It's very relaxed and really very mm. inviting for that reason. Um, you're not really getting a sense of all the calculated, like, you know, rhythms and, you know, harmonies and melodies and things like that and how they all interlock. Um, you're getting more of a, I don't know how to say, just something a little more soothing. Second movement, Allegro, has an appealing melody, and it's played, again, gently by the flute. And Shibata has a nice sort of cushioned tone that's easy on the ear. Um, this uh, movement, it's labeled Allegro, and it's lively enough to be dancey, but not to the point of sounding caffeinated. So it's a little slower than Allegro, I think. I like it. It's, it definitely feels like an Allegro, though, the way they play it. Um, I also like the way Shibata lays down the last note at the cadence and stretches the tempo for it. Really nice. I, I, I really took to that sort of... Um, approach that they use in almost all of these um uh movements it's it kind of it really felt like a big release of tension um mm -hmm. at the end i think it might have untied some of the uh, knots on my back too so thanks yeah. for that okay third movement is called siciliano and this is played very slowly uh, to the point where the siciliano rhythm is kind of like almost unrecognizable like if you you wouldn't really think that this is a siciliano it's it's so slow that it feels like the siciliano rhythm is like a bicycle that um you know is going to tip over because it's not moving forward although <laughs> these days people just kind of stay on the stationary bicycle you know i don't know how they do that i still can't do that <laughs> the tempo is stretched a bit slowing at false cadences and the wonderful distances present in this movement they really kind of make sure you hear those I'm not complaining. The duo's casualness with the tempo draws a lot of welcome tension out of the movement and relaxes the tension more completely. Um, I like the way they express the dissonant false cadence at the end of the first section differently for the repeat. So they repeat the first section and the false cadence kind of comes across differently both times. The movement is nice like this. Personally, I feel like it's too slow and slack. I would have liked it a little more taut. T-A-U-G-H-T. Okay, it's uh, it's still appealing, though. I can't really complain about it. I liked it. And the fourth movement, Allegro Asai, and I guess this is why they played the previous movement so slowly, for the contrast, because this one is played quickly. Um, it's a nice setup for this uh, movement, the, third mo the tempo for the third movement. This is played at moderately fast speed, nothing uncomfortable with the tempi this duo chooses, and there are a lot of rests in the keyboard part while the flute keeps playing. Next, we get to Flute Sonata in E minor, BWV 1034. Now, I really liked the programming here. We heard an E major work, and now we're hearing the uh, parallel minor. I finally remembered that. Um, and uh, it really does, you know, you're hearing basically the same sort of tonic notes and stuff, like the E, but this one sounds like much darker right away. I mean, you notice it really clearly just because of the juxtaposition between this and the previous work. Um, the first movement, again, Adagio ma non tanto, so it's kind of slow. This is, uh, I'm enjoying Romaniuk's arpeggiated chords in this movement, and they tend to peek out between Shibata's rather spare flute melody. Uh, in fact, uh, in this particular work, Shibata adopts a more muted tone in this somber movement, so our ear is drawn more to the keyboard, which is a harpsichord in this work, by the way. Mm. We haven't heard the forte piano yet, I think. Yeah, I'm pretty sure in the first one they didn't use it. Okay, so um, I'm really interested in the change of uh, tone, and I'm wondering if Shibata's using a different flute for this so that it gets a, the muted tone. 
or, or if he's doing this uh, himself. But the harpsichord stands out more in this particular work. The second movement is in Allegro, and it's got a dancey staccato rhythm in both the harpsichord and flute. And the harpsichord is the center of focus again, as Shibata again takes a muted approach and plays a lot of figuration. Romaniuk's instrument has a lot of character. It's appealing to listen to, as is his approach. Again, a slowing of tempo for the ending cadence. I'm really starting to like this uh, approach. I want to hear more of it. Maybe I'll just have to listen to this album again and again. Third movement, Andante. Here the harpsichord has the mute on and produces a tone like a plucking string instrument, which is what it is, but uh, in this case it's muted. And what I mean is it's kind of like some kind of big lute, or lute, mm. sometimes they like to say. Um, he remains clear as the flute plays with a bit more presence in this movement. The mute throws the flute into relief while ensuring that the harpsichord's atmospheric phrasing can be clearly heard. Again, a nice slowing for the cadence after the middle section. We get a repeat of the opening. And the fourth movement is an allegro, and this starts with severe harpsichord chords accompanying the flute's continuous figuration. There's some imitation between the two instruments in the next set of phrases. All right, we get to track 10. This is an improvisation by Anthony Romaniuk on the um, forte piano. So this is a complete change of um, instrument. And it says here, Resonance Arps, which may be his title for this improvisation. I'm not really sure. But the piece really doesn't sound like it's even trying to be Baroque at all. It actually sounds very romantic. It's played on the forte piano. And this is a pretty grand sounding forte piano here. The pedal is um, pressed way down, the sustain pedal. And um, the way it's recorded, too, kind of brings it closer. Mm -hmm. This improv is almost romantic um, in the way the chords are grandly arpeggiated. And the also due to the instrument's longish sustain, it doesn't sustain as long as a piano, but it sounds like he's got the sustain pedal all the way down. The material that comes next consists of rippling trills in both treble and bass. Bass, as far as I can tell, because it's a little blurry. Uh, there may be figures, but the sustain pedal is so strong that I can't make it out. It really is a big departure from the style we've been hearing. It's also pretty brief at just over two minutes, and it comes right in the middle of the program. So it kind of like, cleans your ear sort of like you're sort of like in a different place now and we're going to go back to a Johann Sebastian Bach work the flute sonata in B minor BWV 1030 this is a pretty long work especially the opening andante which um, is almost seven minutes long this time we hear um, Romaniuk on the forte piano um, which is getting closer to the sound of the uh, modern piano it's got hammers instead of um plectrums. Plectrums pluck the strings, the hammers strike the strings. Uh, this instrument has a lot more presence than the harpsichord, but Romanio keeps his volume under control so we can hear the flute. Still, the higher notes of the forte piano are bright enough to mask or be masked by the flute. I can't really tell. They kind of, um, which one's on top? Um, it kind of, it's sort of like the old uh, Buddhist, this is something I heard here, um, the white, uh, the white swan flying uh, across the white moon. So, you know, which one is which? You can't really tell. Um, the tempo is actually closer to Allegro than Andante in this piece, actually. They're kind of, it actually falls somewhere between the two. Um, the forte piano gets a pretty long solo exposition at one point. Uh, there's some pretty interplay between the two when the flute comes back in. And this movement goes on for some time, as I said. 
Along the way, there's some ear-catching dissonance and harmonizing. Uh, there's a nice false cadence as we approach the end, followed by some material that brings us to the ending cadence again with stretched tempo, which I'm starting to really enjoy. Uh, anyway. Second movement, Largo e Dolce. So very slow. This is the most florid example of ornamentation in the program. Both musicians add their own ornaments to the already rich texture. Romaniuk has changed the timbre of his forte piano here. It sounds almost like a, like a harpsichord, but the strings are being hammered, so it is his forte piano. And it's probably some mute. I don't really know what these instruments are capable of, as I've never played one, but the... Um, there's some kind of mute on this. Uh, the forte piano sound is very quiet, while the flute dominating here dominates here with melting phrasing. Um, the third movement is a presto, and um, the forte piano is back to its more piano-y sound that we heard in the first movement. It plays constant figuration as the flute solos with melodic material. Uh, this isn't exactly played presto. It's a little slower, but it's a good lively pace. It's very short at one and a half minutes, and it doesn't end on a cadence. It kind of really ends on a single note that doesn't resolve the material we've heard. And then we go into this fourth movement, which is marked 12-16. Uh, um, so I guess that's the time signature, and, you know, it's kind of like a 3-4, sort of, um, just with uh, 16th notes getting the beat. And uh, this sounds like a gig, because it's, it's got that three feeling to it, um, with the uh, forte piano, again, muted as in movement two. So... He's um, changed the sound of um, um, Romaniuk has changed the sound of his instrument between each movement, um, and it's all balances out in mm. the end, um, providing the familiar triplet rhythm while the flute plays the dancey melody, appealing and lively. And there are some interesting tangy tones coming out of the forte piano, with the mute on. Last track is again credited to Johann Sebastian Bach, Anthony Romaniuk, and Toshiyuki Shibata, like they're all collaborating. This is called Fantasia on an Andante, and the Andante in question is from Sonata BWV528. This is the least historical approach on the album, so we're using period instruments, but we're not playing in period style here. Um, the duo chooses a few points where the flow of Bach's music could be interrupted, like a cadence, this is usually where cadenzas come in. And the bass continues to give structure, and the two take turns at improvising divisions while trying to remain faithful to Bach's musical language. Um, this uh, features the harpsichord at the opening playing solo. The tune is Bachian, but once the flute comes in, the harpsichord rather changes its profile as the flute plays the Bachian melody. There's something like a clock that's not fully wound quality to the tempo that they take in their more original material. The approach to improvisation is interesting. It just appears at certain parts, then Bach's music continues. The improvs seem to be fairly spare, contrasting with Bach's busy material. And the keyboard gets to play alone for a while and play some pretty florid, full-sounding material. When the flute comes back, we get Bachian imitation between the voices. The album ends with that clock-winding-down uh, quality again. There's a dramatic false cadence, and then we just go to the real thing, calmly played like there was never any danger that we weren't going to reach that cadence 
we just calmly get there in a restful state. I found this album soothing and interesting, and it's, as I said earlier, ideal for the early morning. All of the sounds the musicians produce are appealing and just feel good. Uh, this album is more of an end in itself rather than one that joins the ranks of great Bach recordings. It's sort of, it's on its own here. But I'd recommend it for its unique approach to Bach's music. It's just really appealing, and it is Bach, too, so there you go. What was that um, synth recording of Bach back in the... Uh, Wendy Carlos? Switched on Bach, was that yeah, it? Switched on Bach. This, this one should be called Laid Back Bach. Yeah, Bach um, on the Bach on the sofa. Bach on the rocks. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that, you know. I think that I um, think there may have been a recording called Bach on the Rocks somewhere. Bong hit line. Bach. Oh, Something oh, like good. that. That'd be a good yeah. one. Yeah. Yeah, um it's got this relaxed nature to it. The edges taken off the tempos on a lot of things. Uh there's no hurry to get through the allegro and faster things that you sometimes, you know, have as that sort of intense sort of, you know, the opposite of what you were just describing. A lot of Baroque music feels spring wound. Yes. Even when the tempo is not fast, the sort of release and uh, movement of the beats is got a lot of tension behind it. Mm -hmm. And here it doesn't. It's sort of that as you say it's like a a music box that has these mainspring wound down so you don't feel that uh, underlying tension as you do in a lot of baroque works which is a nice contrast you know not that the tension is bad or that it, oh yeah i wouldn't want music, it to yeah. change to this forever I yeah mean, it's it's kind of a nice contrast so, so it's what we a different feel hear. uh i like that it's a more relaxed kind of approach to Bach. I did like the flute tone, as you said. Mm. You got that nice woody, sometimes breathy, but uh, deeper, non-metallic approach. You know, flute is an instrument that can sound really lovely. Uh, you know, even a, a modern uh, metallic flute can get deep resonances and things. Once in a while, though, those edges can raise the hair on the back of your neck or make mm. your ears... You know, resonate where you don't like them. You won't get any of that oh, on this album. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the flute sounds rich and like that. So I liked all of those. I liked the rhythmic approach, or rather the you know the, uh, the kind of laid back tempos. Uh, yeah, the laid back thing. I liked the flute tone. I, I enjoyed all of the different keyboard tones. I was uh, a little bit not uh, overwhelmed with the so-called improvisational. I almost didn't notice them, to be honest. I didn't notice honest. it that yeah. much, yeah. yeah. Um, but that could just because I'm more of a jazz head. and but, uh, Yeah, you know. yeah where they go all out. But I felt like the improvisations here, they were almost unnoticeable. Like, I was like, something sounded a little odd. I was like, ah, I don't think this is Bach, but you're not really sure, you know, because they're pretty much keeping to the, yeah. te- the proper texture, you know. But I, I think that probably, you know, from what I've read and uh studied of music history that I mean, perhaps our modern day interpretations of a lot of historical music, especially Baroque and things, we've probably put too much of a firm grip on the performance style uh, in our study of this music where you will read that you know, the classical composers and performers of that day actually did improvise a lot yeah. uh, in their music and their scores were leaving a lot more open to the interpretations of the musicians. Uh, and when you get into sort of a straight-jacketed approach where 
you know, people become expert technicians and readers of music, but if it's not written on the page and you ask them to come up with something on their own, they can't do it. Uh, that's kind of another extreme to be avoided. So if you have classical musicians who are comfortable with also improvising and they create an environment, you know, to do that type of uh, interpretation or extra addition of even if it's just ornamentation I don't think it's a bad thing and again Bach you can on any of his uh, compositions or sonatas and things how many recordings are there to go through uh, why replicate those recordings or try to best them technically uh, it's nice to see a different approach to them like this and you can enjoy it in a different way and that's how I did and yeah, so yeah. it's a nice listen. As you say, normally I think of uh, Baroque music as something that goes along with my caffeination in the morning. But this right. is more. Of, this is more of a chill out uh, Bach in both the uh, kind of rhythmic approach and the soft and rich tones of the uh, instruments. So yeah, worth hearing. Yeah, I thought so too. Um... You were saying bong hit Bach. It, was, it just gave me this image of um, a friend of mine in college had a bong that was shaped like the dome of the U.S. Capitol. And oh, wow. uh, given given what's going on in there these days, I think about that often. Yeah. Well, that was, um, <laughs> that was the other one I sent you, that thing about uh, this week. Uh, Rick Beato did an interview with Al oh, Di Al Di yeah. yeah. And when he played with Paco de Lucia, when they recorded... Uh, uh, together for the first time I guess uh, he said Paco was too stressed out because he was you know a nervous personality and the other guy said well he's never going to be able to record this <laughs> without a little <laughs> relaxation help and so you know apparently that was just what was needed to uh, get the performance uh, you know locked in so you never know yeah so did he, did he mention what he did he smoke like a marijuana cigarette or was yeah he did yeah his friend he had a friend who uh who uh, went out and had the connections and hooked him up with just what he needed. That's an yeah, excellent... Back, back in the day, you needed those connections. Yeah, huh? this is a really good uh, interview. Anyway, uh, I think it's probably Rick... Uh, it's Beato's best uh, interview. Uh, it's at Miello's house where he seems really relaxed. So uh, oh, cool. lots of musical insights there, too. So recommended to our listeners. Go yeah. check out Rick Beato's interview of Al Demiola. Yeah. Okay. I saw Al Demiola way back in, when I was in college. You know, I think he's... I like him more now or like recently than I did like back then because he was he was this this high speed player back then yeah what he's I think he's gotten yeah. more into he's got, the rhythmic yeah. in, especially right. it comes that, out in this interview that changed him a lot yeah he shows uh the nuances of time and Latin music and how he picked it up and especially you know playing on the up beat the weak beat and then getting the nature of subdivided music and also uh as he's gotten older, and I'm I'm finding also too that I I don't have a tolerance for amplified electronic music as much as when I was young. You know, you could crank it up, and now I really need to focus more on acoustic music. I like to hear more softness, the timbre of the instruments, and uh, walls of sound hurt my ears, and I can't take them. And that's sort of the approach he's taken in his uh, music in, in recent years as well. So that's why mm -hmm. I can enjoy classical music without limits and uh, most of acoustic no, jazz I can, too. I can send so. some stuff your way that might, yeah. That yeah. might change that. 
Well, just in general, yeah. you know. Maybe when I, we do our George Crumb episode, because I expect, since he recently passed away, I expect somebody to start putting out yeah. like some recordings of his works again. But uh, Bridge yeah. recently did like a complete survey. But I've done enough damage to my my ears in studios and with uh, oh, yeah. loud recordings over the years. <laughs> so oh, I want to save what's left mm -hmm. of my hearing. So yeah. It's a real shame because, you, you know, we, we talk about this a lot. Like, um, if you get yourself, a, you know, when you get older, you have enough money for a nice stereo. Mm -hmm. But you don't have the years for it yeah. anymore. You don't <laughs> you need know? the tweeters. It's just not fair. <laughs> you don't need tweeters anymore. <laughs> right. You just take that part out. I've got these yeah. uh, huge dollies with these ribbon tweeters, you know. I don't know if they even work or not because <laughs> I can't hear them. Because <laughs> yeah. I can't hear them yeah, anymore. Oh, Dolly speakers. Those are our recommended speakers. I think we're unanimous on that. Yeah. I've got yeah. two sets. I've those got are, another those set are, those are awesome. that's in a room locked away, but I, my, my wife tells me I should sell them, but I said, absolutely not. I'm going to put a lock yeah. around them because I just yeah. might want to use them again. So Yeah, you don't know. You yeah. never know. Yeah, not only that, you never get those again. You know, they kinda, no, you can't get the- They change them. You can't get the cherry- uh, veneered ones anymore like that one either so you know. yeah I'm looking at like black veneer just because you know they don't <laughs> it's just easier to get yeah, <laughs> it yeah. Just, just looks like it'd be too much work to get there I like the cherry veneer ones the best yeah. myself actually yeah <sighs> anyway they're fantastic anyway on to the next recording and I'm gonna go on to uh, an American composer um, Florence Price now we've talked about her before um she, we we heard recordings of um, not she was kind of part of a like a mixed um, set of uh, chamber works by different composers. Remember the Randall Gooseby record, and also uh, mm. I think um, oh, who who was it? Um, we had one more episode with Isata Kanemason and yeah. uh, her brother right. uh, the cello Sheku Kanemason um, played her music, and I liked them. I thought they were really good. They they she she's um. She's a black American woman, and she made use of a lot of uh, black American music, especially spirituals, in her music. And uh, finally, we've been getting a few recordings of some of her bigger works. Um, and um, the highest profile one is the one I listened to this week, or that we listened to this week, uh, her Symphonies 1 and 3 by the Philadelphia Orchestra. So that's a big-time orchestra. Uh, conducted by Yannick Nezeseguin. I didn't check his pronunciation there, so... Hmm. Anyway, Does this is on the... Very, uh, yeah. Uh, Neze Seguin. Yeah. Or Neze Seguin. Maybe. Seguin, I don't know. But this is on the Deutsche Grammophone label, so that's a, that's a pretty bold release by them as well. Hmm. And um, I, I should mention that uh, Naxos has recently uh, released um, both of these on separate discs of these works, too. And I should really kind of give them a, a comparison listen because these I had a few I had a few issues with um, this particular release although I generally like the music so let's uh, get into this again Florence Price she's American she was born into a middle class family in Little Rock Arkansas in 1887 and I think this story pretty much writes itself at this point if you think about the year um, she was educated in music by her mother uh, to a level where she was enrolled in the New England Conservatory in Boston, uh, majoring in organ and piano performance. Mm. Uh, she was taught music theory by the NEC's uh, director, George Whitefield Chadwick, who was one of the big composers of the time, one of the big American composers mm. of the time. 
Uh, after graduating in 1906, she became head of the music department at Atlanta U University, the first black college in the American South. Uh, she got married in 1912, returned to Arkansas, and taught piano lessons. And then racial tensions and rioting ratcheted up in Arkansas, and the family moved to Chicago in 1927, where she divorced her husband... <laughs> and uh, focused on bringing up her two daughters, studying at the American Conservatory in the meantime. Boy, <laughs> this woman was busy. She yeah. still managed to do music uh, despite all of this. She also studied at Chicago Music College while working as a pianist, organist, and teacher. Those days, if you were working as an organist, you would have been either in a church or at a movie house accompanying silent films, um, which I imagine she did. It doesn't say that in the booklet, though. Uh, it was at this time when she started composing in larger forms, starting with the E minor symphony. All right, now, rather famously, when she died, her works were forgotten and remained in her summer house in Illinois until 2009 when they were discovered by its new owners. <laughs> the, the unbelievable, this is an unbelievable story. That's, really. pretty, that's pretty wild, yeah. Yeah, huh? This is just, uh, imagine that somebody in your family is kind of, you know. You know, you didn't even know they were a composer, and then they die, and you kind of go into their closet. You find these all these like orchestral scores, and <laughs> boy, wow. Okay, now this particular album is the first in a planned series by Neza Seguin and the Philadelphia Orchestra of Florence Price's Orchestral Music. Okay, first we have Symphony Number no. One in E Minor, composed 1931 to 1932. Okay, now this these years are going to be kind of important for this. Um, this work was the first by an African-American woman to be performed by a major American orchestra. Please notice I said African-American woman because I think William Grant still was the first African-American person, he's a man, to have his music performed by a major American orchestra. Okay, that orchestra was the Chicago Symphony conducted by Frederick Stock, who was German, which really must have been something because when you hear this work... Um, you really wonder what the German conductor <laughs> made of it. Interesting, yeah. Yeah. The work, like all of her four symphonies... By the way, she has four symphonies. One of them has been lost, so we don't know what it is. The second. We, there's, we don't have a copy of the second symphony. So she actually has three symphonies that we can hear. Uh, the, like all of her four symphonies, is traditionally laid out. I wonder how they know that if they don't have the second symphony stylistically conservative I'm going to have something to say about that and include modally inflected melodies based on African American spirituals following Dvorak's advice to American composers to build their compositional styles on what he referred to as this is in quotes Negro melodies okay so the melodies you would have heard uh, black Americans singing at the time at the time all large scale American works pretty much sounded like Beethoven and especially Brahms Basically, all American music, art music like this, mm. sounded like Brahms. But Dvorak actually changed all that. He is a major, major influence on American music because he came to New York uh, to conduct and um, he wrote a few works here. And he absorbed the music of black Americans and started, you wove it into his work, most famously in the uh, Ninth Symphony from the New World. New World. Uh, you hear right. all these fantastic melodies. And they've all been identified now, too. So we kind of know where he got them from. Uh, Dvorak, but Dvorak. Um, he Dvorak felt that the music of Beethoven and Brahms really didn't have roots 
in America. They, we shouldn't be composing like them. It's European. That's the way mm-hmm. Europeans, you know, that's the soil it came out of. So it really belongs, the compositional style belongs there. And American music should sound different, he thought. Uh, Florence Price's first symphony is in E minor, the same key as Dvorak's ninth, so she's probably nodding towards that. Um, and this is kind of an odd thing, because like I mentioned the year, 1931 to 1932, uh, Dvorak's ninth symphony was written in 1893. That's um, almost 40 years before this one. Hmm. And this doesn't sound all that different from... Dvorak's <laughs> it's the mm. the melodies come in and they she's she's using the, a lot of the same or similar um, melodies these modal melodies based on uh, Black American spirituals. Now Neze Seguin says of this uh, work that we hear folkloric melodies blended with church music chords and chords that are opening up to jazz to create something that sounds quintessentially American. Okay, yes, that's true, but there's more. Let me kind of get into this. Um, the first movement of this work is Allegro ma non troppo. It's very long, 18 minutes. And um, it starts with a folksy, spiritual-inspired melody. And right away, you you think of Dvorak's Nice Symphony, not only because of the melody, but because of the key. It's really in the same sort of color as Dvorak's Ninth. Um, and Dvorak's music, of course, recalls the black American music of the time, and also the music that uh, Charles Ives would have been familiar with, except that Dvorak puts it more in a, in a more romantic uh, idiom. This, this work is pretty romantic in its musical language as well. The difference is, though, 1931-1933 was reaching the end of the modernist era. So you had composers like Stravinsky, um, Schoenberg... Um, Debussy, who were really changing what music sounded like. And there were still romantic-type composers like Rachmaninoff, but th- th- this is um, this really does sound older than its time. It, it sounds like mm. it was kind of... Um, you know, it was this era was already over when this work was written. Um, the work, though, is catchy and warm, and it's immediately appealing. Uh, all the melodies are immediately appealing. Um it's well orchestrated, very rich. Uh, the second theme sounds like the type of spiritual Dvorak used in uh, his American works. Um, the themes are catchy. They stay in the ear. Price has a lot of them. She, she really just keeps coming up with melodies. And this is kind of something that started getting to me, I have to say. There are several big crescendos that sound like they're going to lead to the revelation of something. But basically what we get after they reach their peak is a grand restatement of the previously heard material. It's really just an old trick that we've heard many times. Um, When the music softens, we get a soulfully played new melody. Uh, One of the appealing things about the symphony is that these themes that would have been familiar to Americans at the time are no longer widely known by us, so we're sort of rediscovering them by hearing this work. Mm -hmm. And we have to be grateful that they've been preserved in works like this and our recordings that were made back in the day. Um, these field recordings. Uh, we hear some chimes after 12 minutes, and apparently this is uh, a, an, a timbre that um, uh, Price liked to use. We hear it again in the Third Symphony, or at the end of this one. I, uh, this is a new sound of the orchestra that draws the ear. This movement doesn't have the forward momentum that Dvorak's Ninth does. It tends to start picking up momentum and lose it, by getting lost in the long exposure of the appealing melodies. Rather than have momentum building throughout the movement, it picks up 
and slows down many times. So it's got like peaks and, trow and troughs. So we don't get this sense of uh, that the opening material is going to lead to the ending 18 minutes mm -hmm. later. So there's no really overarching line to this movement. It just seems like a lot of... It's almost like a parade. It sounds like an exposition of all these really beautiful themes. It's an mm. appealing movement, but not an exciting one uh, because of that, that intellectual uh, layer really isn't there. There's a sort of a weird sudden decrescendo on the last chord that then crescendos to the end. All right, second movement is Largo Maestoso, and it's another long movement, 13 minutes. Really, if this is your first symphony, I, I think you should have gone for something a little more modest. It's very appealing and immediately memorable, again, based on African-American melodies. But to be honest, the exposition of this theme goes on for a long time. The theme gets repeated three times before the Windwoods take over and lead to a new theme based on another spiritual. And the melodies are all very ha haunting, very appealing. Um, the, there's some percussion murmuring in the background as the second theme gets repeated. Uh... The themes in this movement, like in the first movement, are very repetitive. I would like to have heard some development or riffing on them, you know, some creativity, mm -hmm. as opposed to just building to, say, a crescendo with uh, generic material. Um, she seems to keep the melody she's drawing from intact throughout, which rather surprises me. Uh, Dvorak didn't really do that. He's, he would state them clearly once, and then they'd start uh, changing. I don't think they, they're able to sustain interest for the length of this movement, and the same with the first movement. What she'll tend to do is decorate the melody with arabesque-type figures from other elements of the orchestra, uh, sort of like early church music did around its cantus firmus. All right, the one thing that I do like about her, all of her music and the third symphony as well is the juba dance movement, the third movement. It's a nice idea. A juba dance is a um, based on an elaborate form of clapping and body slapping that originated in West Africa. And what's interesting about this is that this isn't the place where the traditional menuet and trio used to go, which Beethoven replaced with the scherzo, because he didn't want to have the menuet and trio. She's chosen a specifically African thing rather than a European thing here, and to put her stamp on this. And I really did like that uh, gesture a lot. It's it's It says who she is, basically. So it's a bit of a fingerprint. Um, this... Um, this um, dance, by the way, was practiced on plantations by the enslaved peoples who were forbidden to use instruments. Uh, this is by far the most interesting movement in the work, uh, I thought. It's got a unique rhythm for a work like this. You know, you generally don't hear rhythm like this in a symphony. And another catchy melody. There are some odd harmonies that add spice to the themes played by the winds. The rhythm shifts into something like an early jazz prototype, midway through so what i mean by that is that, like after ragtime and really just before swing and that sort of little period there it starts sounding a little bit like that like a jelly roll morton type thing um the fourth movement finale but, but you got to remember this is after this was written after the swing era was more well the swing era went on but uh the swing era was the 20s mm. <laughs> you know, and this is after that really um, it was still going on in the 30s, but it had become standard by then. So I feel like the, the swing era's music sounds more modern than this does at its time. The fourth movement finale is presto, and this and the third movement together are half as long as the second movement and the first movement alone. 
And it, you know, this one has a rhythm and a whirling figure that sounds like some kind of British dance. So what's interesting is she has all of these um, sort of African-American melodies, these spiritual melodies. And the fourth movement sounds not quite European, but it sounds like it's nodding more towards a European style than, a, than an African one. It's more of a folk one. dance feel, I feel. Yeah. yeah. But it feels more like it's a European folk dance mm. or maybe something that was imported from Europe into America. Right. Yeah, the quick melody has some blue notes that let you know that it comes from an African-American source, but it really doesn't, um, you know, kind of establish mm. that. It's over pretty quickly, this movement. Okay, so let's go on to Symphony Number no. 3. Oh, wait, yeah, wait, go ahead. Before that, yeah. So, yeah. I really enjoyed the this piece um, ton tonally. Uh, yeah. And so, the, the timbres that she uses to decorate these are really Some lovely them, yeah yeah so i really like that uh and i enjoyed these uh you know these kind of folk diatonic uh themes that right. pop up here and the instrumentation the, it the thing that was really kind of uh strange is that the especially here the f the finale the fourth movement is so short compared to <laughs> To the uh, oh, the first two movements. The first yeah. two movements, yeah. It's sort of uh, the balance is really odd to me uh, because uh, you're usually expecting, you know, some sort of uh, recurrence of the, you know, earlier heard themes incorporated into a final statement uh, and a more development in the in the last movement, but you don't get that here, uh, and so the the balance of this whole work is a little strange in that way i felt yeah structurally uh, i was kind of wondering about yeah. it it doesn't like i said it doesn't have that through line even in single movements yeah. although the third and fourth movement she's she's more comfortable i think in these shorter forms yeah and i kind of wish be. the rest the first and second movement had been similar lengths i Could think this like would have been a really great structural work structured um, well structured work as well just uh, before you go on to the next one, I had something pop into my mind I want to get out uh, yeah. with that. So um, this whole idea, uh, and we talked uh, when we had the interview about Ronitsky with yeah. uh, Daniel Bernardson and Mark uh, Stilitz to uh, uh, incorporation of folk music uh, hmm. into music. You know, this was a popular thing in European music, uh, even back into the classical era. Uh, and then more so in the romantic, you know, in different. Well, in the especially in the modernist era. In the modernist when era, when they actually went and collected these, um, these folk things songs, melodies. too. And so it's kind of interesting that, uh, especially that, as you said, uh, Dvorak was encouraging American composers to use their own type of things, uh, yeah. their own sounds. So I think that's this is an interesting uh, thing to use uh, American sounds. So I just had an experience today. Um, I, I told you earlier, uh, today, earlier in the day, I took a train to Nara, the ancient capital of Japan. And uh, in Japan, on trains, and other, well, not only, anywhere around, you'll hear little tidbits of melodies played, uh, right. you know, around you uh, all the time. So the sort of arrival sound of the train was, uh, Oh, Susanna. <laughs> right. And so who wrote O Susanna? Probably arguably the most important American composer, Stephen Foster. Right. Right. Who's look at a list of the songs that he wrote 
they are American music. And he incorporated, uh, he, he was uh, white, but he incorporated, you know, black music melody ideas into his music and they became part of the culture. He never re really profited much from this, but you know, Oh Susanna, Camptown Races, uh, My Old Kentucky Home, all these, this is American, America, right? Right. Um, 19th century yeah. America anyway. Yeah. And then uh, just to think that um, this, this is not the only melody by him that I've heard, you know, in Japan. Yeah, Play we actually mentioned there was one in an Ozu film. Yeah, yeah, when the kids are singing in Tokyo Story at the end of Tokyo Story, it's a, it's a Stephen Foster tune. Uh, yeah. Masses in the cold, cold ground. And but they're singing it to different words, yeah. of course. Yeah. And yeah, and that's the thing. A, a lot of Japanese uh, believe that some of these are actually Japanese melodies because they don't know the <laughs> the origins of it. And I just thought, well, we could do a whole episode just on this. It just struck me, yeah, as a real curious think that a, a so uniquely American melody was just made into uh, you well, know, an arrival think, sound for a train. Yeah, They yeah. think Old Lang, Old Lang Syne is Japanese, yeah. a lot of people, right. because they just yeah. grow up with well, it. Wait, you know? yeah. I've even heard that the Yankee Doodle <laughs> is thought oh, of man. as a, the song of the Japanese Alps, Japan Alps or something. Anyway, it just shows you how melodies can escape their context and, uh, yeah. and uh, go to other places. So I think it's I like this idea to focus on these kind of uh, themes uh, and use them uh, in some, you know, more so-called serious type of works here. Uh, although, as you say, we're not familiar in our time with what a lot of these uh, melodies might uh, yeah. be. In, uh, they, wouldn't, they would be familiar to the audience of the time, but when you have a gap uh, like this, um, I, I'd like to know the origin of a lot more of these themes myself too. I think research is going to be done on them in the next, yeah, you know, the coming sure. decades, and then we'll know because we we know the themes that Dvorak used because he's he's a famous composer and right, you know, researchers have done the work, and I think now that we're hearing Florence Price's music, we might find out the uh, origins of a lot of these yeah. melodies as well. Yeah, I want to mention. I wanted to just finish the story about Auld Lang Syne um, in oh. Japan. <laughs> well, you know, it's Auld Lang Syne is played at uh, closing time. It's sort of like the musical signal that uh, some, uh, you know, like an establishment is closing. They'll play it in malls. They'll play it in shops and yeah. you know, in pubs and stuff like that. And uh, so they just got used to hearing it, and uh, they they just think it's Japanese. But I have to say, one thing that really charms me about Japan is just the use of musical cues to signal something like for example closing time or to signal when it's okay to cross the street and, you know mm -hmm. they'll have these little sometimes they'll have these little melodies these days they're using beeps for that but they, yeah. they were melodies in the past um, it's 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 sort of a nice if you if you have a musical ear it's it's sort of nice to be out in society in Japan you hear a lot of this yeah. it annoys even, some people but I, I really like it even if it's just an interval <laughs> it's yeah. interesting oh yeah <laughs> The Japanese, yeah, they're funny. They're they're a music loving people, you know. Or if you say they're a music loving culture, but they're not partic a particularly musical culture in that they produce a lot of um, music. They're a very visual culture, I think. If I think about, mm. if I had to define Japan from an outsider's you know point of view, um, to, yeah. Anyway, yeah, but they do love they do love music. Hmm? Important a lot in uh, even in food and other things. Yeah, they love food too. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> Lucky for us, yeah. I have, like, jazz albums, you know, like Yoko Miwa and, like, who else? 
I forget. But a lot of their compositions, their jazz compositions, are named after like food. <laughs> you know? It's interesting. Like the, the yeah, it's kind of odd. They'll just kind of name it after some food that they like. This is just jazz... called cheesecake. You know, cheesecake, <laughs> chitlins. Uh, yeah, whatever. All right. Anyway, we're still in Florence Price. Let's yeah, go to the, right. the third symphony, the third which I symphony. think is a more. This is a more successful work than the first. This, this now, is more advanced. Yeah. Yeah. When I say successful, please, it doesn't mean the first symphony isn't good. It is. It's very appealing. Hmm. But I'm thinking overall, structurally, in an intellectual sense. All right. I think your mind's going to wander a lot if you hear the first symphony, in spite of the really nice melodies. You know, it's because it doesn't really all hold together it sounds very episodic okay it's if it's it's um it works in the details more like you know, russ had mentioned that he liked the uh orchestration and there were some really nice touches mm. that i remember too like i mentioned the chimes we're gonna hear that again in this third symphony by the way in c minor 1938 to 1940 now neza seguin's um remarks about this work is that every melody feels like it should be sung um, I think that's generally, that's kind of an odd statement, I think, because I feel like melodies all feel like they should be sung. If they don't, they're not melodies, they're figuration. <laughs> but mm. I guess I'm just being nitpicky there. Okay, the material is so vocal, the writing is almost choral, and the orchestration encourages solos from everywhere in the orchestra. Well, let's have a listen. Uh, Andante Allegro, the first movement. So whenever you see that label, Andante is kind of slowish and Allegro is fast. Generally, you're looking at an introduction followed by the main part of the movement. And that is what we get here. I thought this movement had some really nice orchestration and the brass and wind and harmonies in mm. the Andante section, the opening section. Um, the Allegro, the main theme, starts at a minute and 45 seconds. And again, I rather like the juxtaposition of the spiritual theme with the odd swirling harmony in the brass and winds that interrupt it. Um, this symphony's four movements are more balanced time-wise uh, than the first symphonies. And I really love the rich low tones Price gives to the theme that we hear at the four-minute mark in the low reeds. I I was trying to figure out what instrument it was. Uh, is it a bassoon? I'm guessing. I couldn't really tell. And this is an another issue I have with this release. The um, sound quality of the recording. It kind of sounds like it has like a, a some kind of a gauze over it, sort of like a Vaseline over the camera lens kind of quality. It's not... It's certainly not clinical, clinically clear by any means. It's it's kind of there's a there's a certain haze over the entire sound, so it makes it a little hard to uh, pick out mm. some of the instruments out of the uh, orchestration, out of the harmonization. Um, the theme that I talked about uh, gets reorchestrated as it repeats. A new theme with a high stepping profile appears at the six minute forty five second mark. Uh, all this movement is appealing. Um, but again, like with the first movement, even though it's shorter, I don't feel like it adds up. There's a kind of parade-like quality to the way these themes are presented. Like they're, you're standing in the street and these people are passing by you. So it's like these themes are just going by and then the next one comes and then the next one comes and then it ends. Um, that, that's the quality I got, the, the image I got from listening to this. It's not, it doesn't feel like a sonata in the sense that there's a th two themes and then they develop. Mm. I don't really hear any development. I just hear like the themes kind of being varied a bit and um, then going on to the next theme. 
Yeah, I wrote, it's like a focus on tonal colors and melodic yeah. phrasing rather than development. Um, you could think of almost Ravel's bolero, you know, how it's just the same yeah. melody that keeps repeating over and over again, but mm. it's um, harmonized differently and mm. it has different timbres each time, so to keep it interesting. Okay, the second movement, Andante ma non troppo, so it's kind of slow. A very pretty theme on English horn opens the movement. Again, a nice touch. It's a, it's a, English horn is a really nice color here, uh, or nice timbre, I should say. Uh, there's another theme played on the winds and traded off with strings at around the three-minute mark. Uh, the orchestration in the brass and winds is well done. It brings a funereal sort of heaviness to the rather sad melodic material. This is kind of a sad-sounding movement. It's kind of heavy. Again... This winds up being a parade of black American themes linking by traditional figures, like sequencing to a different key, mm. you know, or just presenting a crescendo or something like that. She uses a, this familiar device of chimes, which she seems to like a lot, to break up the sound at 7 minutes and 45 seconds. So we hear that again. We heard that in the first symphony as well. The third movement, again, is a juba. This is seems to be uh, Price's uh, thumbprint on the, on this particular dance movement. By the way, for people who don't know, a symphony in four movements, the basic idea behind it is that the first movement is an, the intellectual movement. you got to follow the themes and hear how they develop. The second movement is usually slow, and that's more like a song supposed to appeal to the heart. The third movement is the dance movement appealing to the body. And the fourth movement is supposed to integrate them all into this big party. <laughs> anyway... <laughs> Body and soul. I don't know how to yeah. think about it. So, intellects often sort of who talk about classic music often say that the fourth movement, like nobody has ever really figured out how the fourth movement should basically go because it's got to conclude the whole work, and uh, it doesn't really have much of a profile of its own. Now, you could say like Beethoven had the grandest uh, statements. I mean, geez, the Ode to Joy at the end of the Ninth mm. Symphony is pretty. Uh, <laughs> Is pretty expansive, right. let's say, and of course the fifth, uh, the fourth movement of the fifth symphony um, spends a lot of time in C major, so to, so that it can release all of the tension. By the way, try to do this, do this um, experiment. Try to just one day just listen to the uh, Bach, um, sorry, the Beethoven uh, fifth symphony, only the fourth movement. Just put the fourth movement on. It's really weird because it's all <laughs> release of tension. You're just hearing C major being pounded on, and you can hear why the first three movements matter because all of that is releasing the tension. Mm. You don't notice it as being really repetitive if you listen to it with the other three movements. But on its own, mm. it, it just sounds really weak. You know? Anyway. Uh, so this, um, the dance is a highly rhythmic figure and appealing melody. We're talking about the Juba movement. Um, I'm not really sure that Yannick Seguin captures the dance profile precisely on this particular recording. Uh, the rhythmic edges feel blunted, and there's a raunchiness to the material at about a minute and 45 seconds in that I feel isn't brought out enough. He, he, he kind of like cleans this up a little bit, I feel like, in his uh, his approach. Uh, he uh, goes for something a little more homey. Well, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, this is different from the the symphony one in that right. uh, it gets, it gets kind of like an umpa thing going with the brass. Yeah. And then you get this, the horse clop, right. Yeah. With the wood block. But as you say, it's an extremely polite <laughs> rendition of that. Right. Kind of I, I feel. I don't think it should be. I think yeah. it should be nasty, you know? Um, I don't know. Yeah. I, I think they could, um, 
you know, get some more horse into the into the <laughs> kind of clapping thing going along. Yeah, yeah. I know it's what you mean. Polite. No, I know. I think polite. he's a little too yeah. polite. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, he goes for something more homey here. I said that's the mm. way I put it. Uh, nice writing for the muted brass in the middle section, accompanied by a syncopated tapping percussion. In, in fact, that's what kind of makes me want to hear the Naxos recording because I'm wondering if that conductor uh, mm. brought out the you know, the edginess of this particular movement or really the whole work mm. a little more. I'm going to have to give that a listen. There's a cool xylophone, I think. Yes. I think yeah, it's a xylophone. Yeah, yeah. That, yeah. That's a nice little surprise there too. Yeah. At, at about three minutes and 45 seconds if you want to hear it. It's an inspired idea. I like the sound. I think it's a xylophone. Do you think? I think so. It sounds um, kind It's of not fun. a marimba, definitely, because that's too... No, I, I think it's a xylophone because it's got that type of attack and quick decay to it. So. Yeah, I think of a xylophone as being like bony and dry, mm -hmm. kind of like, like you're yeah. playing on somebody's like rib cage or something. Right. You know? It kind of sounds like <laughs> that. <laughs> All right, fourth movement is a scherzo. Now, a scherzo, if you, we know Beethoven, this is usually the dance movement, you know, the, what um, Price has um, cast as the juba. I hope I'm saying that right. It's juba or yuba? I guess it's juba. I'm just guessing. Okay, the scherzo movement is the finale. It's, it's played allegro. As in the first symphony, this movement feels more European than the previous three movements, with touches of American blue notes involved. It's pretty brief at five minutes and five seconds. The rhythm chugs aggressively and suddenly stops for slower material. And it's got this really good, powerful ending as well. Okay, now I want to mention these these fourth movements. She obviously wants this quality because she does. She's done it in two different symphonies, and I'm wondering what she's after here. So I'm not going to complain about it. This is really her intention. Mm. Um, I'm really curious to know what her idea is, though, with that. Okay, the Philadelphia Orchestra gets the expansive sound we've come to know from them. This is a decent recording, but it has a ha bit of a haze over it, as I said. And it has fine idiomatic performances for the most part. Although, like I said, it could have some elements could have been brought out a bit more. I like this, but it didn't excite me, uh, and it let me down at the long form level. Um, nevertheless, I think this is music people should hear, and maybe you might want to hear the Naxos recordings, though I haven't heard them, so I can't recommend them yet. Um, by the way, I want to mention this haze thing. Um, I listened to um, the. Um, uh, the Kapustin, like right after this, when I was listening to these two, and geez, the recording quality was just completely like different. <laughs> so so that, that's kind of what right. made me think this was a little missing in the uh, lacking in the uh, clarity quality a bit. Yeah, I like these for the you know the folk themes, uh, African American spiritual. Uh, which come off when this orchestra play them as just generally folky. Um, there's a few blue notes in some of the things that might give more hints to the African origin of them. I, I like her writing of uh, tonal blends. That sort mm -hmm. of she has a nice sense of timbre, uh, and then you hear the themes as you say that there's not a lot of uh, exposition of uh, building on things right uh, yeah more than that, that kind of let me down yeah. i'm kind of wondering about that so that leaves some wanting in sort of the arc of the composition maybe it's made up for just the richness of the sounds of trading off and using the timbres of instruments i thought she does that well 
in the uh, third uh, symphony, I really liked the sort of second movement, the uh, pastoral quality uh, with the oboe and mm -hmm. then uh, woodwinds. Uh, I, I really liked her uh, use of the woodwinds to uh, yeah, I build did too. She's got a real ear for them. Yeah, yeah, it was really nice. And she also writes really well for brass. And I, I thought balancing out the three sections, strings, woodwind, and brass with different themes is what I found that to be the strength of the way that, you know, she orchestrates the sound and the timbre. And that, that's what drew me into the works, the, you know, the melodies, these African-American melodies, which really be, have become the basis of American music and the mm. tonal blends. As far as bringing your conceptions of sort of the European arc of the different movements of a symphony, you'll may find things out of kilter uh, uh, in the development and what you expect from, you know, each movement in the, in a symphony. Uh, but, you know, if you can let those expectations go, you'll find a lot of uh, sort of richness of sound, despite, you know, something maybe lacking in the sonics of the recording for clarity. Um, but, uh, yeah, I'm glad I got to hear these. It's kind of interesting. And I want to hear the other one of her, the three of the four that are available. I could also see that um, the from the first symphony is rather a straight exposition. As you say, it's sort of a lining up of melodic mm -hmm. themes that go along. And you can see that her uh, compositional uh knowledge and study had advanced by the third uh, symphony because you'll get a lot of sort of transitions, especially the way that she uses the strings more to bridge uh, the melodic themes uh, and sort of uh, there's, a, there's more transpose, transpositions of things. Yeah. And um, she's sort of like Gershwin that way where she, centers. her like technique yeah. like advances so quickly, you know, from... yeah. So you can you know, see that his works development into more uh, sort of modern techniques of composition uh, in the third one. Uh, but yeah, I want to hear the the. So the second one is lost. Then that's what I read. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I, and now yeah. I, I find myself. Well, I want to hear the fourth. Symphony yeah, that'll be her last where, one. Where, 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 where did she wind up? <laughs> where did it go from here? Yeah. yeah. But yeah, you should hear these, especially if you like. Um, American uh, classical music, American composers. I think uh, this is uh, definitely worth hearing, and um, it's 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 quite beautiful. It's actually an easy. These are easy to listen to. Uh, there's it, melodically rich, and uh, the harmonizations are very warming. And yeah, so it's uh, not anything that's going to fill you with dissonance or anything. They're generally pleasing works to listen to. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They they absolutely won't uh, chase you away. Yeah. Um, they're they're pretty good. Now, this series is going to go on. They're going to record the fourth symphony, and um, they're also she also has like some concerti. So there's a piano concerto. I know that, hmm. and I'm very curious to hear that. So yeah. when that we'll probably talk about that on the program when that finally comes out. I'm, I am curious. I'm also curious to see who they're going to get to play it. Yeah, that'll be interesting. It'll be on Deutsche Grammophone. I hope it's idiomatic. <laughs> Now we got yeah. uh, this next one is really this is an interesting program, uh, right? Yeah, you know, so, 
I don't know. I'll let you introduce it. I have some interesting ideas, but I like. Yeah, I don't know. It's kind of the, this is. Yeah. Okay. Well, our last composer <laughs> is um, Nikolai Kapustin. Now, <laughs> interestingly <laughs> enough, he is. Um, he was born in. Uh, 1937 in uh, the Donetsk Oblast version of Eastern Ukraine, as fate would have it. So we have a yes. Ukrainian composer on the program. This is not by uh, planning. We're not trying to make any kind of statement here. We, I planned this before this, um, the, you know, this um, Russian invasion started this week. If you're listening at a later date, so I had planned to hear this before that happened. I had it on my list for a long time. Kapustin is an interesting character. Let's get to him in a moment. But let me just explain what this is. He was born in 1937. He was, he died in 2020, so just two years ago. Um, yeah, so he's he's only recently died. Um, we're going to hear his piano concerto number four, his uh, double concerto for violin, piano, and string orchestra, and his chamber symphony. The performers are uh, Frank Dupree on the piano, and he also conducts the chamber symphony. Hmm. Um, Roseanne Philipp- Philippens on the violin. Um, Dupree, by the way, is German. Which is 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 he German? I didn't write this down. I think he is. Um, Philippines is Dutch, and she was born in Amsterdam. And the Württembergisches Kammer uh, Orchestra Heilbronn. That's a mouthful Could, there. Yeah, wow. <laughs> Württembergisches. Württembergisches. Wow. Yeah. Can you imagine uh, telling telling a German <laughs> woman you love her? Jeez, it would take forever. <laughs> she has she has enough time to run away before yeah. you finish your declaration there. Okay. Conducted by Casa Scaglione, uh, who isn't Italian. Oh. <laughs> it's, it's, I, I, I think I wrote this down later. I'll see if I can find it. Scaglione. Anyway, this is on the Capriccio label, which is Austrian, and it's the label's located in Vienna on the Capriccio label. Mm. Okay, now, Kapustin, I mentioned he's Ukrainian. Oh, he was Ukrainian. Well, you know, if he was still alive, he still would be Ukrainian. Uh, you can think of him as the Russian Gershwin. Now, his whole project is to combine jazz and classical music into, like, jazz rhythms, idiomatic playing into classical forms, like larger classical forms. And it's a really fascinating experiment. He really does yeah. seem to have a magic touch with that sort of thing. Usually, these are pretty ill-fated uh Projects. I mean, we've heard pl- plenty of American ones that really didn't work. I found this but, qu- this quote by him. So apparently, you know, he played in jazz bands. Yeah. When he was young, but this this is really interesting. So this is quote right. I was never a jazz musician. I never tried to be a real jazz pianist, but I had to do it because of the composing. I'm not interested in improvisation. And what is a <laughs> jazz musician without improvisation? All of my improvisations are written, of course, and they become much much better. It improved them. <laughs> I thought that was really interesting. If you yeah. listen to this, uh, you know, uh, it sheds some light uh, into what's going on here. So somehow he was able to capture the spontaneity and improvisational nature of jazz into, you know, this yeah. compositional form. And, and it's and, pretty miraculous because yeah, when people really write jazz down it doesn't that doesn't always happen it loses a lot yeah Yeah. but he had this yeah kind of like the way Debussy like one of the things Debussy said about his uh, orchestral image there's um there's the moment when the second movement goes into the third movement like the the sunrise on the festival day 
Um, Debussy remarked that he was really happy about it because it sounded totally improvised. Hmm. So he had captured that yeah. Spanish spirit that he had, like, uh, you yeah. know, experienced. Well, and but, uh, that's sort of like this in a way. But the other thing, the yeah. the best improvised jazz solos, like if you listen to the masters, you know, like, uh, okay, let's just pick one. Coleman Hawkins. Uh, listen to his, you know, tenor sax solos you when you listen to one of them if you analyze it you'll be said when you look at it at the end you'll say this could not have been played any other way you couldn't write yeah. this any better you know what i mean yeah, um, yeah. so I, I think that's true of all you know really great jazz solos uh they have this sort of composed nature to them and so you know you, you're coming from these two opposites sort of uh starting points the meeting point uh can be something that can satisfy sort of both expectations uh if it has that right magic to it and, I and think this, this I does, think this yeah. does. Yeah. yeah this is really special um there, there's something i don't want to say he's jazzier than gershwin gershwin's like just really it gershwin's like in our blood if we're americans we're just kind of those melodies are just like indelible but the, he really just captures something really you know, authentic here when in these compositions, it's really amazing. And, um, uh, yeah, and I I yeah. really give uh, credit to this uh, Dupree. This is yeah, hard. he this plays sounds extremely like, well. This sounds really hard to play. This stuff. Uh, it's yeah, hard yeah. to play. Not only that, but one of the big complaints that I think both of us have about classical music, classical pianists playing in a jazz idiom, is they tend to rush the material, and it feels like there's not enough space to make it really hmm. sound like jazz. That is not the case here at all. He he seems to have like this perfect yeah. understanding of this music. Okay, um, I mentioned him as the Russian Gershwin Kapustin, but he's he's different than Gershwin, and he has deeper classical roots than Gershwin has. Uh, Gershwin really came from the um, from Tim Pan Alley. He was more of a he started as a songwriter, and then his um, sort of like compositional, you know, he started studying and his compositional style got deeper and deeper. And he sadly died at um, around 39 years old. And it would have been, mm. if he would have lived another 20 or 30 years, it would have been yeah, interesting to see where he would have gone. This is not a really good comparison. What I, yeah, it's what not, I would say yeah. is that, you know, Gershwin became a large part of jazz because his compositions became, you know, the launching point. Uh, yeah, and not only and that, but songs at the standard. time were... Jazzy, yeah, you know, jazzy. It, was, it was all one big yeah. sort of like and, cultural and, and, bubble. And so sort what of. I, I, you know, it's a different era completely. But I mm. just think that uh, Kapustin, uh sort of wholeheartedly absorbs Gershwin's gift to music, but he brings that into you know this new era with a lot more, you know, modern type of things with it. Uh, so rather than seeing it as sort of a comparison, I would see it as sort of the logical extension. You know, just like we are, we've, we're later we're going to hear some sax players. Yes, we and, are. <laughs> um, we've listened to a lot of sax players. And so every, every modern sax player, you know, comes through Coltrane, right? And, right. you know, you can't ever be better than Coltrane, but you're informed by what he did on the saxophone. And then, you know, a lot of players can only take a small part of that and then go somewhere with it. I, I see it the same way, you know. So I, I, f I feel like the Gershwin made a huge imprint on yeah. uh, Kopustin, and he, he acknowledges that without any, 
uh, hiding of that fact. But then he adds, you know, his own, uh, you know, Gershwin coming from an immigrant family, but being wholeheartedly American. And this is sort of the op- the inverse of that. Uh, you've got a European who has absorbed oh, you. Yeah. I don't know. That, would that be? Would Ukraine be Europe? I don't know. It's well, kind of a funny sort of in between yeah, place, you know. Yeah, but Maybe so he's far not, Eastern Europe or something. Yeah, yeah, far Eastern Europe. It's not American, but it's mm. he's absorbed the Gershwin sort of concept, but it's not quite that. It's it's something new and different yet again. Uh, but it's definitely yeah, and, a, a big ingredient uh, in the sound, and that's nice. Right, and this is, I got to say, this is a little puzzling to me because I I've read so much about how in the you know Ukraine was part of the Soviet Union of the at yeah, the time. Yeah. And I've read so much about how the Soviet censors just, you know, made Dmitry Shostakovich's life just you yeah. know, terrible. How was Kapustin able to write music like this? Because jazz know. at the time was considered to be, uh, I'm thinking of the German word, entartete musique. Yeah. It's, you know, it's um, degenerate music, you know, and that's what they would say by the you know yeah. communist authorities as well as the fascist authority you know you know right <laughs> you just can't win you know both sides I, don't I should, like you i should say you too know? that i mm. i felt in in his uh sort of uh use of harmony and timbre i could hear a, a big french influence of wc uh mm. and other things not so much you know american in sound uh in his music as well he, so there's a lot of european yeah. Yeah, stuff so. in here, yeah. Yeah, and there's not much Russian stuff, really. It really no. does sound no, no, European no. and American. And American, yeah. yeah. Yeah, okay. So, Kapustin, let me, let's just talk about him a little bit. I, I was trying to, this is from the booklet. Um, I, really, I really wish someone would write a biography of him so I can really know what his story is. He was considerably, Kapustin was considerably influenced by the political background of his youth. Yeah, whenever we talk about Russia, or Ukraine in the 20th century, or any of the um, uh, you know Soviet satellite countries, you know that we think of, we think about them like that now, like Latvia, or Estonia, Lithuania. Um, there's always going to be some political background. It was like a pretty horrific century for them. Mm. Um, he he was born in 1937 in the Donetsk Oblast in eastern Ukraine, which was then part of Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic, which would soon become one of the most horrifying theaters of World War II. Oh, mm. boy. When he was three, he was evacuated to the Kyrgyz city of Tokmak. He received his early training as a pianist from Avrelian Rubak, a, f- a pupil of Felix Blumenfeld, one of the great 20th century pianists. And from 1956 with Alexander Goldenweiser at the Moscow Conservatory. So he went to Russia and studied there, too. Mm. Got a good classical grounding. From that time, he always lived in... From that point, he always lived in Moscow. Uh, before he finished his studies in 1961, he had successfully worked as a jazz pianist, arranger, and composer. He had his own quintet and was a member of Yuri Solsky's big band, and later in the Oleg Lundström Orchestra, for which he would compose pieces that became popular in Russia. And it doesn't say anything about how he got away yeah. with this. I don't know, you know? Because <laughs> mm. I, I would think that they'd be cracking down on yeah. you know these foreign influences, right? They were trying to get this music of the people sort of thing in the Soviet Union. From 1972 on, he was the pianist for the Symphony Orchestra of All Union Radio and Television in Moscow. The booklet doesn't talk much about Soviet censorship of the time, but we know a lot about this from Shostakovich's career, and it makes me wonder how such Western forms of jazz had developed such a repertoire 
in the Soviet Union. Uh, Kapustin's works really started to take off when his catalog of works reached the publishing house of Shot Music in Mainz. Um, he died in 2020, not enjoying his growing fame for long. He did get to see it towards the mm-hmm. end of his life. Um, yeah, the Soviet Union fell in when 1989, I believe, and um, so he's, he was starting to become known after that. His, he focuses on the piano in most of his music, and most of his compositions are influenced by jazz and combine jazz ele- elements with those of the tradition from Bach to Prokofiev and Stravinsky. Uh, his works should be thought of as classical works that use stylistic devices of jazz. And that's really what they sound like to mm. me. Uh, they don't sound like jazz. They sound very jazzy, though. Mm. Yeah. He never considered himself to be a jazz musician, as Russ pointed out. Okay, the first work on this disc is a one-movement concerto uh, number four for piano and orchestra, Opus 56, composed in 1989. Um, this features Frank Dupree, German pianist on the piano, the Württembergisches Kammer Orchestra Heilbrunn, uh, which is a German orchestra, and Kaze Scalione, who's from Texas in the USA. Yeehaw! <laughs> Ride him. Go figure. Go dogs. Anyways. Yeah. I knew he was from wow. somewhere. I couldn't remember where. <laughs> All right. Oh, boy. I guess you want somebody like that at the helm, you know, to get them get the right idiot. Absolutely. Anyway. This work is highly virtuosic. Oh, boy, is it. Just give this yeah. a listen. The, the, the piano playing is really... Hmm. It's, it requires a high level of virtuosity. Not only that, but the jazz idiom comes across perfectly despite all the difficulty. It's really incredible. Mm. Um, the, Dupree's performance here really is a marvel. Uh, this is the most virtuosic of Capustin's four piano concertos. This is... Uh, it's thought of as one movement, but it's divided in three large sections. Um, the first is lively throughout with occasional lyrical passages. The second movement starts andante, so you can hear the music slowing down when that starts. Features rubato and a lot of swing. There's a transition, and the last part of the concerto is as long as the two preceding parts and is virtuosic like the first section. Now, the thing that struck me about this recording right away was the very clear sound, especially after the Price recording. This is, it's crystal clear. Um, Mm. Really beautiful recording, so this is one for the engineers. We should give them a mention. Oh, well, <laughs> towards the end, I'll try to look them up. Um, and I enjoyed the jazzy rhythm that opens this piece. The piano playing is idiomatic. It keeps with the veering material. It's always kind of, it's almost like this wild, you know, car ride through these mm. different alleys or something like that. You don't really know where you're going. It's very exciting. The piano gets a solo in which it explodes into fantastic jazzy figures. Then the music quietens quietens with some thematic and mood contrast. That would be the second section. Uh, The piano sounds present and percussive. The orchestral accompaniment maintains momentum throughout this constantly changing and swerving work. There are some gorgeous warm movements in the orchestration. Uh, For example, uh, after the 8 minute and 30 second mark, you can check it out there. And the piano playing is very idiomatic. Exciting work. Highly recommended to hear it. Okay, one of the interesting things about this program is it, it starts really enjoyable and playful and gets gradually darker <laughs> as it goes yeah. on. The um, Concerto for Violin, Piano, and String Orchestra, Opus 105, composed in 2002, is next. I'm trying to grab the CD over here. Um, this is like bluesy bar talk 
<laughs> bar talk, more bar talk than blues, though, I think. Mm. Now, this one features Roseanne Philippens, the Dutch um, violinist, and Frank Dupree on the piano. And uh, Casa Scaglione, the conductor, is conducting the Württembergische Kammer Orchestra Heilbronn, Heilbronn in Germany. This is a more conventional work than the piano concerto. It has three movements, and it takes some steps in the direction of symphonic jazz. First movement, Allegro non troppo, starts with a jazzy rhythm in the strings, which the violin solos over in a more traditional classical style. The violin always sounds classical in this piece. It doesn't really mm. sound... Well, it does at certain parts. It kind of starts getting a little bit of a Stefan Grappelli vibe to it. And the piano solos over in a jazzy style. The piano always sounds jazzy. So there's a kind of a contrast mm. between the lines that the two instruments play. After a brief jazzy orchestra interlude, the violin gets a cadenza and plays in a classical style. Afterwards, the piano comes in and sets a jazzy rhythm, which the violin follows in a classical style. They actually trade styles at one point with the violin playing a jazzy melody and the piano answering with the more traditional classical figures. And when I say classical figures, I'm thinking romantic and early 20th century. There's a lot of trading off of styles, and that seems to be what this movement is about. Kapustin is able to juxtapose the various styles so well that he's got this chameleon quality uh, to him. It's got an appealing, quiet ending, this movement. Second movement is Largo, and sentiment rules here. The separation of soloists and orchestral accompaniment are put into higher relief. The orchestral strings play a... I called it a schmaltzy melody to open the movement. <laughs> schmaltzy. Uh, schmaltzy. Give it more schmaltz. Schmaltz. The violin takes a classically oriented melodic approach as the piano plays warm chords underneath. There's a very appealing muted violin melody accompanied by pizzicati bass chords at one point. Very nice. The piano then comes in with some bluesy jazz sounding a bit like Gershwin. So the classical material continues in the violin with the jazz peeking in and occasionally breaking through. There are some poignant moments here when the soloists are exposed and play quiet, intimate sounding material, especially towards the end inside the six minute mark. I like the way classical sounding figures will morph into jazz oriented ones by a simple displacing of the rhythmic feel. It's, mm -hmm. it's really a very clever technique. If you listen carefully, you can actually hear it as it's happening. So this work, you know, repays uh, repeated listening just for that. The third movement, Allegretto, has an aggressive perpetuum mobile opening, and the violin and piano both start their solo parts right away. After the opening material, the bass starts a quick walking figure, and the jazz elements return, especially in the piano. The violin sounds like a mix between Korngold's very romantic violin concerto and Stefan Grappelli switching between the styles. There's a super cool 1920s flapper-style jazz explosion from the solo <laughs> piano after two minutes. It's mm -hmm. something I yeah. just pulled right out of the yep. 1920s yep. Uh, that the violin comments on. There's one more rhythmic figure, and then we hear after this. Then the uh, that Charleston... I think of it as, I think that's a Charleston ah, rhythm. Right, right. Charleston rhythm explosion returns, and the piece ends with a flourish. Again, another very enjoyable mm. and interesting piece. Finally, we get to the Chamber Symphony, Opus 57, written in 1990. The uh, Well, not the earliest. Uh, the Piano Concerto was written before this. Um, 1990. This one has Frank Dupree conducting. Hmm. Uh, so Casa Scaglione has uh, gone home at this point. 
the pianist Frank Dupree is conducting the Württembergisches Kammerorchester Heilbronn, and uh, there's no piano in this, no solos. This is just for the orchestra. Uh, this work is more severe than the other two, so it ends kind of on a more serious note, this program. First movement, there are three movements, is Largo, Allegro con Brio, and Allegretto. The movement juxtaposes the dark material of the introduction with driving motoric jazzy elements. The opening is ominous with a tolling tympanum and strings creating a hazy atmosphere. At one point it suddenly lightens and speeds up and we hear jazzy but heavy figures. This doesn't sing out freely like in the other two works. It's reined in by the harmonic material as though the rhythm can't break out of the harmonic bonds. We go back and forth between the heavy material and the attempted jazz breakthrough. I did like the swaying rhythm and orchestration right at around the six-minute mark. It gets kind of a rock beat in yeah, this one. I and so. I thought there's a, a theme that develops that reminds me of that sort of Peter Gunn. Yeah. Gets going under there. Oh, by the way, the recording engineer on this album is Bernhard Hanke. And I want to say... Good work, sir. <laughs> okay, this is a yeah. really fantastic sounding recording. The piano sounds huge yeah. <laughs> on this recording. Yeah. 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 All right, so second movement of the chamber symphony, Grave, which is slow. This works as sort of an interlude or interruption between the first and third movements. It begins in an introverted manner in contrast to the previous movement. There's a lot of counterpoint. So this will be classical and even Baroque mm -hmm. era type uh music it starts with a lovely winding melody in the winds and develops from there then we get to the third movement toccata which a toccata is supposed to demonstrate touch technique and this is labeled vivo very lively um the booklet says this demonstrates the baroque forms underlying the work well i guess um but i didn't really hear it like that mm -hmm. um the thematic material continues where the first movement left off the movement starts off wildly lurching in its tricky syncopated figures. Uh, there's a drum kit outlining a rhythm in the background. The movement is built on phrases of odd length fitting within a traditional meter and syncopated rhythm. I wonder if this last work would have sounded different with Kaze Scaglione, the Texan, conducting. He had a light touch in the other two works, and here it comes off as less fun, and may very well be less fun, uh, than the other two, and therefore less likable due to its position in the program. Mm -hmm. um, it's good, though. I mean, it's certainly good. The program almost takes away elements of fun as it goes. <laughs> it starts yeah. really fun. It's, right. it's like it's like when you take in, like those little Lego bricks out of the building and then suddenly mm -hmm. it's going to collapse. Um, but that's no disrespect to the composer or the program either. I think I wanted it to be fun like the other, the opening two works and found it less appealing for that reason. Um, but it's a really good work. It's great for itself, very inventive, and probably the most formally realized work on this album. I'm speaking of the Chamber Symphony. In a way, uh, this album sums up the adult music podcast itself, putting jazz and classical music together. It's a music version of what we're trying to do on this podcast and I also like the way Kapustin's music is full of textural surprises a lot of rabbits are pulled out of hats in these scores delightful yeah this was a real eye-opening uh, and enjoyable I just think as far as programming goes putting the chamber symphony at the end it can't but be 
sort of a letdown in terms of expectation from all the jazziness uh, before. But it doesn't mean it's right. a lesser work in any way. Uh, it's just not as appealing in uh, the sort of jazz qualities, but it's still fun it's, and it's fresh. It's not aiming to please in the same way. As yeah, it comes down it's to. fun and fresh, and it has a lot of interesting uh, rhythmic ideas uh, inside of it. And uh, yeah, I guess not having a full grasp of all of his works together, you know, just if you're picking three and putting them uh, together like this, I guess you're going to get this kind of uh, combination. But uh, the piano concerto is, uh, you know, the most sort of uh, kind of jazzy in mm. general, I thought. And I was really surprised and amazed at the uh, technique of the pianist and uh, the excitement in the compositions. I liked sort of the balance, as you said, it's sort of playing classical and jazz worlds off as identified with each instrument uh, in the uh, second work, the concerto right, for violin yeah. and piano. Um, and you know, the chamber symphony is a little bit of a different uh, animal. But uh, yeah, what he can do by channeling jazz music into uh, really composed music and still having it retain that sort of uh, improvisational character to it is quite amazing. And it's fun. The only thing I found in this music that um, it's a bit, uh, the the adjective I wrote is histrionic. Uh, hmm. yeah. I, didn't, I didn't, that wasn't a word that occurred to me for this. Yeah, it, it does change rather rapidly uh, as sort of, um, you know, in any kind of an emotional sense. Uh, you'll be in one mood and then it, it turns rapidly uh, into some other area, which is exciting, but a little bit exhausting. Uh, <laughs> as if, yeah, maybe. If it were a person's personality, you may tire of them uh, quickly. Uh, I found it kind of engaging, but uh, if you're looking for sort of, um, you know, in the arc of the composition with smooth transitions between kind of sections, uh, that doesn't necessarily apply to this uh it's and and maybe that adds to the sort of improvisational character of it that it, it sort of uh the way he writes freely goes into another mood or an idea uh without sort of the sort of uh, structuring and build up that you would get in other classical music in between sort of uh, you know, ideas that are built into one composition. Yeah, it's just something I noticed. But I, I generally uh, found all of it really engaging and exciting and uh, keeps you on your toes between what's coming on next. And uh, yeah, I yeah. want to mention, before we get off this topic, yeah. um, I've heard uh, at le a few other Kapustin recordings. Uh, Marc-Andre Amlan and Stephen Osborne both recorded albums of his piano music. And they were both good, but I just want to mention this is the, easily the best recording of Kapusa's music that I've heard so okay. far. So this would be the place to start mm. if you're interested in hearing this composer. It's it's very charming. You, you're definitely going to hear a lot of Gershwin in it, but it's not limited to that. There's other things going on, uh, and it's it's bluesy at the same time. Uh, in especially in the the second work, I found. Uh, some sort of Bartok kind of uh, string arrangement ideas in there as well. Uh, it's just a lot of fun. Uh, really interesting composer I want to hear more of, yeah. Yeah, I, I want to hear more too. All right, so where are we going now in jazz? We got jazz coming up. 
Well, this week we're going to get a lot of sex. Yeah. I, yeah. I feel sexually satisfied. You should. <laughs> After this week. I've got a, I've got a big list. I'm guessing that the episode is going to be have one of those sex, sexual names, right? Yeah, it's, uh, it really has. We have a million of them. We have to start actually. Using I got to tell so. you, Mike. Um, yeah, these days I'm just getting more sex than I can handle. Oh boy, um, how I envy you! <laughs> you know, um, I've got a a growing list. This month I was just overwhelmed with uh, new jazz releases, and. You know, I'm sort of trying to categorize them, deciding, you know, how to put them together as releases. Uh, and when I just look as sort of uh, instrumentally as a focus rather than stylistically or whatnot, when I look at all of the different sacks that I have, it's just a lot. Um, yeah. You know, and uh, well, wait, I've got some, I've got a good horn classical disc that we have to do one day. Gotta, okay. I've so got some, next time you do some brass, let me know. I've got a I've got a big trumpet list. I think I've got another trombone episode ready to go. I've got a vocal one coming up, but my okay. sax is just you know uh, really really growing. Uh, so we're yeah, gonna I'm get still, a little. I'm still a bit anemic on the classical end here in 2022. Not not really seeing much. There's some things that we've already talked about last mm. year that, you know, series that have kind of uh, put out new releases this year that eh, may, I might do, but we'll have to right. see, you know. But um, so I'm still waiting for the big uh, classical explosion for 2022. Right. So all I can tell listeners is uh, I'm going to give you a good sax life uh, this oh, yeah. year uh, in addition to other things. But uh, we got to get some of these out there. Um, so uh, this week I've got a <clears throat> kind of composite, a, a balanced thing of uh, old and new. Uh, here we're going to start with the new. Um, and this is just something I took a chance on because it looked interesting. Uh, episode 48, we heard a uh, up-and-coming hot sax player, uh, Gabor Bola from Hungary. Mm. And I thought uh, that was a really good uh, release. And I think he's going to uh, go a lot of places. And I just happened to, among my list, come across another Hungarian sax player. And uh, me having some Hungarian blood, uh, my grandfather was uh, from Hungary. Actually, probably uh, the family came from uh, Slovakia through Hungary, as far as I understand it. Uh, but, uh, you know, Hungary is a very interesting country uh, for classical music. And uh, I was, you know, among the jazz journeys we've taken on the podcast, we've done a lot of uh, Scandinavian jazz, Italian jazz, French jazz. And uh, Bola was the first sort of dip to Hungarian uh, musicians. And I thought, well, let's uh, see what else is going on here. And so tonight we've got uh, Daniel Varga. Uh, with yeah. his uh, recording, Eastern European Quartet. And I like that name too. Uh, yeah. Because it kind of captures uh, this idea of where Hungary is. And it's on a uh, label I've never heard of, Felizak. <laughs> uh, so there it is. Um, it kind of so, sounds like a sexual activity, doesn't it? It does. Yeah. Give me some more Felizak. <laughs> <laughs> or a supplement, you know. Felizak me, baby. Yeah, Felizak <laughs> me. Yeah. Don't forget the Cialis. 
pop me a fellow. Oh, no. I don't anyway. think you should have gotten that. I don't think you should have gotten that uh, explicit. But anyway. I should not have. Yeah. Anyway, uh, Vargas, Hungarian saxophonist and a composer. Uh, he, uh, I guess he played with some kind of uh, indie rock uh, formations too, uh, coming up. And uh, he's uh, won some awards, uh, Palace of Arts Jazz Showcase in 2015 in, uh, I think that was in uh, Poland. And uh, he's won uh, award as Best Hungarian Musician uh 2018 and 19 uh, also award for composition and arrangement from the Hungarian Jazz Federation and uh, recently uh, there's a competition international saxophone competition uh, uh, the Michael Brecker famous name in jazz of course mm. uh, the Red Sea Jazz Festival and he placed highly in that uh, composition uh, comp competition rather and uh, so it seems like an up and coming player who's going to go places and so I thought well let's check this out so uh, Varga himself plays alto sax and uh, on this recording we've got uh, a quartet uh, that's rounded out uh, Pyotr Lipowitz on guitar uh, Ivar Krizik on bass and Pyotr Budniak on drums if I've pronounced any of your names wrong, you have to forgive me because we have to go through lots of languages on adult music. Uh, so sometimes we don't get everything pronounced just right. But we do our best, don't we, Mike? We do. Well, yeah. We do. So, we always try. Uh, we got I, album. I just hope all the Hungarians know who we're talking about. I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it seems to be all original compositions on this album, beginning with uh, photosynthesis. Okay, at least I can pronounce that. And I have an idea from middle school what he's talking about. <laughs> yeah, I think I yeah. vaguely remember this. Yeah. Uh, anyway, it's a kind of a medium, even four-beat tune. Um, it's some like plant sexual thing, right? Yeah, it's a plant. Yeah, maybe it's more <laughs> nutritional than sexual. sexual. Oh, it's more nutritional? Yeah, okay. I guess so. Um, and... Uh, get a sense right away of Vargas tone. He has this kind of glowing uh, sex tone on the melody. That's what drew me uh, to want to uh, talk about this one. Cause I really like this kind of sound he gets uh, emanating from the alto. It, it, it's a, uh, it's not a traditional alto kind of sound, but it's got this more kind of laser focus uh, to it. Uh, and a large shape to this sound is what, uh, Lipowitz does on guitar here uh, is because he's the only sort of instrument putting harmony uh, into this uh, recording. So here he kind of sketches arpeggios and chords underneath. Um, and uh, on drums, uh, Budniak has got a lot of kind of uh, drum uh, rim clicks here that establish the beat. Things come down uh, right away after the melody for a bass solo to start out from Krizik. He gets a nice kind of round tone in the upper register. It shows uh, nice agility and a melodic sense. Then Varga comes up for a solo. He starts with some kind of topsy-turvy phrases and a breathy tone. Uh, Budniak mixes up the beat a lot in the solos. So there's a lot of rhythmic freedom. Uh, there's a lot of freedom in general on this uh, album. Uh, for improvising uh, but I like the way that uh, 
it swells at the climaxes in the solos. Varga brings back the melody, uh, this time with more of an edgy tone. And then there's a bass vamp section uh, for Budniak to do some drum soloing over. And uh, Lipowitz adds some kind of crunchy chords between uh, or before the final phrase. Uh, so that's how we get started here. We've got uh, uh, kind of curious pieces on here. Uh, parts one and part two of faking. So part, track two is called faking <laughs> part one. It's kind of a short free blowing piece. Uh, Kutzik gets a nice bass groove going for Varga to improvise over. Uh, and Lipowitz adds kind of sporadic three note figures that alternate uh, from the uh, left and right channels. So they're panning uh, in your uh, headphones or speakers and they speed up together in unison. Uh, which is always cool for kind of a final race to the end of this short piece. Uh, three is called Miss Little October. This has kind of cycling syncopated synthy guitar chords as an intro. Uh, and then Lipowitz dials back the sort of aggressive tone when Varga plays the more lyrical melody notes. It's got a funky kind of fusion rock beat feel to it. Uh, Lipowitz gets a cleaner tone solo over more minimal bass and drums. And then I'm not sure if he's overdubbing these or he's you know able to do these effects at the same time. There's kind of these synthy washes that are played uh, underneath it. And then uh, Varga comes in for a solo over that uh, washy mix. Uh, and then Lipowitz brings back the chords as his solo builds to a climax. Uh, Varga's solo is lyrical and passionate. Uh, there's a couple kind of bluesy hints uh, in uh, his choices of lines, and they finish up with a repeat of the melody. Track four is a transpiration. Uh, this starts with a repeated kind of pedal note bass intro. Lipowitz adds chords as the bass continues, and Varga brings in a melody uh, over which uh, Budniak add some nice cymbal textures. The second section gets rockier and the guitar tone gets some more distortion on it. It resets to a quietness with light bass and cymbals for Lipowitz to start his solo on. He focuses on articulation uh, and attack of the notes with a lot of space between notes at first and then he gets into weaving sort of longer lines in his solo. Then Varga solos next. Uh, he gets into both the lower and higher registers of the horn on this one. Uh, it's rather free improvising, uh, but he has a good sense of direction uh, in his solo lines. And that's sort of helped out by the bass pulse of Kridzik uh, that keeps uh, his phrases driving along. And when he reaches the end, there are kind of cool rhythmic breaks that are repeated and fade out as they reach the end. Track five is called Familiar Feeling. This has kind of a pretty tremolo guitar intro to the ballad that this song is. Varga shows a softer tone on the melody on this one. I like how uh, Lipowitz doubles on the melody as well as adding chords and arpeggios behind him. So he's sort of reinforcing his song as well as accompanying him here. Uh, Budniak does some soft hi-hat and nice tom feels on this one. And Lipowitz gets a solo and he plays it more gently and melodic on this tune. Uh, Varga's solo is also melodic, but he has a lot of flurries and flutters 
reminded me of a butterfly flying around mm. uh, melodic themes. Uh, so I, I liked that sort of uh, dancing tones. Six is called Osmotic Pressure. This has mysterious deep echoing tones and percussion to start out the tune. A crying type of bass bowing up high comes in and works up a frenzy with the drums. The beat gels into kind of a heavy, slow, subdivided groove to match the soaring melody played by Varga that floats above the big guitar synth washes underneath. <laughs> and then Varga jams out from the melody and uh, things start to fade away over the eerie wash uh, that uh, comes as the end approaches. You uh, called the uh, bass says cry. I, I wrote the word muling. It kind of made me think of a cat. Oh. You know, at the <laughs> beginning. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, this um, is an odd piece. I thought of a lot of pressure. Yeah. yeah. Um, track seven, Pitch Boy, uh, B-O-I. Um, this one starts with a heavy beat and guitar riff, uh, which Varga lays a contrasting line over. The meter changes. Uh, sometimes it feels like it's four beats, and then sometimes it's five. Uh, yep. And I mentioned the five is like one, two, three, one, one two, two, like sort right. of in a, hung, a bar talk piece, really, yeah. a Hungarian folk song, which I know about because of bar talk, really. I don't really know much about yeah. Hungarian folk song. Yeah. <laughs> but mm. it's hard to get an uh, idea of what is actually going on here. I, I want to call this one Rhythm Boy rather than Pitch Boy. But, I yeah. got the same thing. Jeez. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. There's a contrasting section that comes up next. It's got a different feel to it. And then the rhythm breaks up uh, for a solo by Lipowitz that works uh, into heavy chords and harmonics. Budniak mixes up the beat and there are synth washes under the solo. And Varga comes back in and uh, Lipowitz uh, Lipowitz changes up to some kind of choppy chords underneath that while uh, the uh, drum beat settles down. Uh, this one will keep you guessing <laughs> as to what's yeah. really going on uh, here. Uh, I, like, I like the rock guitar in this, though. Too. Yeah. yeah, it's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. um, track eight is called Intro. Uh, get some bass harmonics for the intro to intro. Uh, <laughs> Varga blows uh, soft sort of tentative figures uh, that form a melody over the bass harmonics. Uh, and it's kind of uh, uh, the, these intervals uh, going for like E flat minor to D flat uh, major, uh, this alternating. And, and it sort of introduces this um, meditative effect uh, here. So um, I thought that was kind of interesting. Now, I have no idea how to pronounce this one uh track oh, nine uh whenever you have s and z together uh more so zomorian magyar i guess zomorian zomorian magyar and i guess that translates as uh, sadly hungarian ha. <laughs> there you go um anyway it's a uh, interesting minor modal melody with some twists to the uh harmony uh played by Varga, while Lipowitz adds some choppy chords. The beat is a kind of a slow dirge from the bass line uh, as Varga starts a second section of the tune and then more synth washes come underneath. Uh, the beat gets heavy, uh, but Varga kind of blows intense slow phrases and then it breaks up with Krijic continuing on along with light drum textures. Varga comes back in for some soloing with some outside 
of the cord exploration. You get some cries and strangulations in along the way <laughs> as uh, Kritzik keeps a firm bass foundation. It works back into the melody. Uh, and here, it sounds like Varga overdubbed a section uh, high uh, doubling with the guitar as well as a lower line because I definitely hear uh, two uh, sax lines happening at once. Um, but definitely getting in some uh, Hungarian uh, kind of modal scale influences in this one, I think. Track 10, we've got part two of Faking. Uh, this is a kind of gong-like guitar tones and uh, cries that start. Then a funky drum beat with a, a high rhythmic bass in the right channel comes through. It sets a groove for some kind of chromatic question and answer lines uh, played by Varga. Then we're going to uh, get to track 11, Flying Tones. It's a menacing minor bass riff and tremolo guitar chords that start this out. Varga introduces the soft melody. There's some interesting harmonic changes in the tune. Budniak plays some nice cymbal and other fills uh, to uh, kind of fill in the gaps on this tune. Varga continues into a solo, and then the groove thickens. His lines have a real charged intensity in this solo, uh, locking in with the changing rhythmic patterns in the bass and drums. After reaching kind of a spontaneous combustion, uh, he brings it back down, and the others draw back for a bass solo by Krizik. Uh, he plays some cool modally ideas and works hard in the upper register uh, for clean attacks, even on rapid tones. There's a pause, then they bring the melody back with high intensity, uh, the second time. Kritzik drives it with steady repeated bass notes and Varga uh, gets to blow a bit more as they vamp to the end with cool arpeggios from uh, Lipowitz. And the next piece, the next unpronounceable name yeah. is... <laughs> I think this one is uh, actually Dutch. Uh, yeah. Okay, uh, that's which it sounds means, pretty Sounds good. about Dutch. Sounds Dutch anyway. Yeah, I guess this Dutch means like me. fan out or spread out. Um uh, this is um, kind of like an echoey bass major scale kind of uh, interval bowing figure that's kind of like in, I think it's an E, it sounds like. It sort of floats and pauses and it returns uh, like about the, a minute and a half. Uh, the sax enters with some sporadic melodic lines, guitar with some contrasting and tension-building tones. Uh, the bass figure sometimes double up and then dissipates. Uh, things get spacey and washy with guitar tones. The guitar picks up kind of a minor version of that riff that you heard in the beginning in E uh, for a little bit. Then Varga comes back with a, just a few tones uh, before this kind of like, like this interstellar noise that <laughs> it gels into and then it fades into blackness. Um, yeah, so uh, it's an interesting set of compositions and interplay of different tones and ideas. Um, I, I really like Varga's sax playing. I like his tone and his solo explorations are interesting. I'm not so sure about these sort of wash effects and things with the guitar. Uh, sometimes the rock, the guitar gets into rockier kind of ideas, yeah, cool which are kind that. of cool that too. Um, and you definitely get some Eastern European influences, I think, uh, just naturally. Uh, maybe Bartok and these Hungarian kind of scales 
that have obviously influenced his musical makeup. Um, yeah, maybe a bit uneven, but overall interesting. And definitely his sax technique is, uh, you know, impressive. And uh, yeah, I'd like to hear him in some other settings, maybe. And uh, maybe as a sideman, yeah. Yeah, sideman or with like a piano based group too or yeah anything else i definitely think he's a hot player and i want to you know hear uh some more of his uh improvised ideas maybe in different settings i gotta say this uh episode it's pretty sax oriented but these three records that you chose they are completely different than each other really yeah it was a pretty interesting uh you know, sort of uh, exploration of the different ways the sax can mm. go. I thought this particular album was, it was pretty original, I thought. Um, yeah, definitely. I think because of all the the elements. Now, Hungarian elements are a bit familiar to my ear, being a big fan of the music of Bartok and Ligeti and Kodai and you right. know, people like that in, in classical music. So they, they like to play with the meter a lot, and I kind of appreciated that in this particular album. Um, the album stretches the ear and the mind in parts, which I've always up for. Um, but this isn't, it's not really an album I'm going to go back to. I, I liked it though. I, I would recommend hearing it. Um, the, yeah, like you, I think the, uh, the Brian Eno, we kind of like, uh, <laughs> sort of background kind of, I was kind of wondering, it didn't really need to be there. I, I don't know. Maybe it's just, a was appealing to them. They they liked the idea of it, but um, you know, yeah, that that stuff was okay. I did like the rock guitar too. I like the there mm. there were a lot there was a lot of um there were a lot of ingredients in this goulash. Let's say, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I did. All right, that's all I got there. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, I'm, yeah. I'm I really like uh, Varga's uh, sax tone and. Mm. Uh, I, I like some of the directions that his solos go. So yeah. I'll keep a ear out for uh, something that he does next. Uh, okay, so as we say, we've got a lot of different sax personalities here. So we're going to move to a new sexual position uh, for the next one. Uh, <laughs> we're going to, first of all, trade from uh, alto to tenor. And we're going to go with a player that I was kind of aware of, but I hadn't heard. And... I saw this uh, setting that he's in, and I said, well, definitely I have to hear this. And uh, this is a lot of fun, this recording. Uh, so we're going to uh, next go to the Positone label, which we featured a bit on this podcast. Uh, the saxophonist is Diego Rivera, and the recording is Mestizo. And here he's with uh, some uh, compatriots that we've uh, featured a lot on the uh adult music podcast we've got uh, alex sipiagen who we've heard uh a number of times uh with uh, dave kikoski i believe and uh we've heard uh i know maybe we didn't do that one but he did an album with dave kikoski uh previously we heard sipiagen's uh own uh led album and uh, also with another pianist a couple weeks back. Uh, we've got a pianist that we really like, uh, Art Hirahara, uh, who we've heard uh, a couple times. And then <laughs> we've dubbed him the uh, Russian Ron Carter Boris Kozlov on bass, who I've checked who has showed up on nine episodes just because he's recording everywhere. 
<laughs> and with yeah, everyone. he's uh, he's definitely the. I think he, we might be able to call him the adult music podcast's uh, favorite bass player. Favorite bass player. Yeah. 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 He's and, also our favorite Russian at the moment. Yeah, so. right at the moment. Yeah. And uh, also uh, another drummer who always you know shows up. This is sort of the posse tone uh, rhythm section here, but always tasty and uh, a good man to have in your group. Rudy Roystrin on drums and percussion. So who is uh, Diego Rivera, well, uh, he's uh, obviously a, a tenor sax player, but also a composer, as we've got all original compositions on this disc, arranger and educator. Uh, he's been playing uh, as a well-known uh, sax player for more than 20 years. Uh, he's known for his big, uh, fat, strong tone, uh, straight-ahead mainstream jazz ideas, but also informed and inspired by his uh, Latino background and heritage. Uh, he is currently, uh, let's see, a associate professor of jazz saxophone at Michigan State University and uh, also the associate director of jazz studies. He's originally from Ann Arbor, not too far from East Lansing, Michigan. Uh, he's born into a Mexican-American family. So that uh, heritage has been important in shaping his uh, musical concepts. Here, he's got these uh, compatriots focusing on his original compositions. Now, his uh, just to give you an idea of where he came from, his original debut recording as a leader was back in 2006. Uh, it's called Hercules. It's also a really good recording. Good check out. Not a bad name for an al his album, considering... The muscularity of his tone. You know, yeah. This guy has a huge tone. Yeah, I was just I was just thinking before you go on. I, he he works at the University of Michigan. Um, you know, plays probably in clubs at night. What a, what a nice life that is. Huh? Yeah, I mean, yeah. You, you make your living as a jazz musician, and then you get to teach like these uh, university students during the day. It's uh, it's kind of an ideal life. Seems to be. I think we um, almost have that. <laughs> almost, yeah. We're getting there. The, the podcast is going to get bigger. We'll be okay. It will be all set. So he, he does have a huge kind of muscular tone, but he is able to shape that uh, according to the uh, type of material that he has because uh, there's some really sweet ballads here. And uh, he, he has an edge and a soft side uh, that he can exploit uh, equally well, I think. As we'll see on this recording, and endearing compositions, and we we love uh, Latin jazz here on uh, Adult oh, Music Podcast, yeah. and uh, yeah, we get enough uh, enough of little dips into that uh, here to be really satisfying. And this whole album is really uplifting and energized. Uh, so th this this is a recording you're going to want to listen to again and again to put you in a mood. It is, in fact, a recording I bought before we did this podcast episode simply because I liked it so much when I heard it. Yeah, it's so, really good. It's, I, I have this on a CD. So uh, let's uh, go through the tracks here. Uh, track one, Battle Fatigue, uh, starts out with Blasting Horns uh, on the opening rift. Then uh, Hirahara takes us around the kind of modally chord cycle a few times. The beat is straight up Latin on this one. The horns come back in with the unison melody line. 
Then it splits into separate parts, which is cool arrangement. Hirahara has a little piano interlude uh, that swings before the horn lines repeat over the original Latin rhythm. Rivera uh, jumps out of the gate with his solo, and the rhythm changes up to a hard-driving swing. He has a strong tenor tone. He plays with intensity, adding a few honky extended notes uh, near the end. Uh, Sipiojin is up next, starting out with fluid lines and then screaming up high on his horn. Uh, right after his solo, uh, the rhythm goes back to Latin, and uh, then Hirahara goes around the chord cycle again before the horns repeat the melody riff, and it slows to a close. It's a very high-energy opening tune. Uh, give you a glimpse at things to come. Uh, let's see, track two, Resquash. Hmm. Don't know. Yeah, it just it just occurs to me. Battle fatigue is a really cool name for the first track. It's very cool because yeah. battle fatigues would be a kind of clothes and right. clothing. And uh, I feel like these jazz guys, we have to get them to name our podcast episodes. We got to make friends. We should do that. that. Yeah, they have some good titles. Rusquash also is pretty cool here. I don't know. Is that Sasquatch's sister? I don't know. I'm wondering. Yeah, because yeah, it, it kind of be. reminds it. It might mean something. I'll look could it up be. while you talk. Here we go. Yeah. This is a right. slinky minor Latin tune. Uh, the horn. Uh, unison lines are spaced up with some nice Hirahara solo fills. Then the horns split with the sax uh, blowing figures under a sustained trumpet line, uh, which makes a nice effect. Royston has some nice Latin percussion clicks behind everything. Rivera solos first, mixing kind of bluesy and Latin uh, lines to get together. Uh, Sipiogen is next. And he plays a restrained solo with nice articulation on this track. Uh, Hirahara has a great solo on this one with nice rhythmic feel, chiming notes uh, and punchy chords. And Kozlov himself gets a little bass spot before they redo the melody uh, with a pause before the final chord. Yeah, no me- no meaning on that name came no. up. So. Yeah, I, I maybe looked some, it up Maybe too. somebody's name. Could be, yeah. yeah. Uh, track three, Teru. Uh, it's a very slow ballad to uh, show off some rich tone from Rivera. Uh, this rhythm lays kind of a tasty bass for him uh, to gently blow the melody. Uh, Kozlov's bass is thick and steady, uh, along with Hirahara's uh, pretty chord fills and uh, Royston's tasty cymbal textures. Uh, the rhythm breathes and pauses at phrases. Hirahara has a really magical solo of light floating lines, delicate figures here. And then Rivera comes back for a little soloing before getting back to the melody. I'll listen for Kozlov's little bass diddles underneath. It would be cool to be Art Hirahara. He has good ideas. Ah, uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, this is a really good. lovely ballad tune. Yeah. Uh, track four, Bracero. Uh, it's a Latin number. This one will make you want to dance. Uh, great mm. horn lines uh, and a mixture of rhythms. The melody weaves around and has a kind of cute little stop time section and great fills by Royston. Rivera is up first with a really energetic solo. Then Sipiogen with some real agility in his lines. And uh, Hirahara gets into the rhythm uh, behind Sipiogen's solo. Uh, Royston gets some drum jamming over a bass line and then a Latin vamp from Hirahara before they repeat the cool theme. Another very energetic number. Track five is Escapade. It's an interesting tune. The rhythm section is busy with Latin grooves underneath. And then above that, 
you get these kind of relaxedly floating horn lines in contrast. Uh, the rhythm changes up a lot throughout the melody. To outline these changes, Kozlov gets lots of creative groove ideas to work through. Uh, so follow the bass in this tune. Uh, it's well worth it. Uh, Rivera blows the first solo, and he rides the different grooves uh, with his solo lines. Uh, Sipi Jin has a good solo here too, and then Hirohara uh, gets a solo uh, that should have been allowed to go on longer. I feel mm. like they <laughs> pulled the plug... Just what he yeah, was for me, this in. is a big issue on this album in general. Like, I was really getting into, like, these rhythms and a lot of these solos, and they just kind of seem to stop just as they're picking up steam. Yeah. This isn't the only time that happens. No, no. Um, mm. Definitely could have opened up these tunes. Could have made a double album out of this, just extending the solos. Uh, yeah. I felt really here that uh, you know, I needed more room to uh, keep going on this one. Right. Um, and uh, at the end of this one, uh, when they repeat the melody, the ending has some kind of unexpected pauses, create a little tension before the final notes. Uh, track six, uh, Cancion de Cuna. Uh, it's a slow Latin beat ballad. Rivera plays the minor melody tenderly, and then he trades it off with Sipiogen before they come back and harmonize to the end. Sipiogen solos first. Uh, he gets some kind of nice uh, fluff marshmallow tones on the horn on this <laughs> one. Uh and he holds back for some really uh, beautiful ballad playing. Uh, he's a trumpet player. It's a lot of technique. He can often sort of, uh, you know, get up into the higher register, uh, even on ballads or when he's playing uh, flugelhorn. But here, I think he's uh, all uh, warm and fluffy in a really good way. Uh, Rivera is sweet and tasty in his solo as well. Uh, in contrast, I've thought Hirohara's solo on this one is more intense, focusing on some really nice articulation and accents, uh, and that all ties back into uh, close with the melody. Uh, track seven is called Most from the Least. Uh, this starts with drums fills from Royston. Uh, this is kind of a like post-bop burning tune here. Get some muscular horn lines with accented chords from Hirohara to feed the flow of the melody. Who uh, And Hirohara also solos first. This is a great, but again, much too short solo uh, <laughs> with fast lines, great coordinated two-handed ideas. Uh, Rivera is up next. He builds on his ideas, uh, making longer lines of responses to his own kind of questions. And then Sipiogen gets some hesitant rhythmic notes and uh, kind of blows them out <laughs> up into the upper <laughs> register, having a lot of fun. Uh, Royston also gets a drum solo here. He's got tight figures uh, with some nice tom work uh, before they get back to the hard boppish head of the tune. Uh, track eight, La Raza Cosmica. It's a very funky bass and piano intro riff on this one. Uh, the horns have like a bluesy kind of version of Mary Had a Little Lamb <laughs> on top <laughs> of this to start the melody. Yeah, da, 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 kind of thing. Oh, wow. uh, the melody uh, gets a little bit more dancey with a great Kozlov bass line underneath uh, here. Kozlov solos first over this funky groove here. Uh, the two alternating chords that the sort of solo section is built over make a kind of hypnotic feel. Uh, and Hirohara's backing chords drive uh, the solo along. Uh, and then he's up for a solo himself with lots of snappy rhythmic chords and ideas. The volume simmers down uh, here 
to the start of Rivera's solo, and then they build it back up as Rivera builds intensity uh, in his playing. Uh, he throws in a little uh, Love Supreme quote from Co uh, Coltrane before the uh, kind of happy changes of the chord cycle come back in, and they repeat the melody to take it out. So nice little touch there. Uh, track nine, The Rose Window. Uh, this one starts with some rubato sax and f kind of flugelhorn from Sipiogen uh, over some tasty bass bowing, cymbal textures, and sweet fills by Hirahara. Uh, it swells into these kind of flowing things for about two and a half minutes until Kozlov comes in with a medium swing bass walk uh, that sets a new tempo. Rivera takes over for some soloing, adding a bit of uh, bluesy feel to it. Uh, Sipiogen is up next. He gets up high, uh, but shows nice phrasing uh, over the arc of his solo. And Hirahara gets kind of a short solo here. Then he rolls it uh, back into the beginning rubato wash uh, that we heard before for a repeat of the first section. And uh, we end up with the title track, uh, Mestizo. Uh, this one starts uh, from Royston with some funky fills. Kozlov and Hirahara join in uh, to create a nice Latin groove. The horns come in with tight lines, and then the beat switches up to a middle swing section before it goes back to Latin. Uh, Rivera's charged right up to come out swinging in his solo. Uh, he builds it up with lots of connected lines passes it off to Scipiogen. Uh, this is a really nice kind of transitions here. Uh, he sails up high. He ends it in like a Freddie Hubbard-esque uh, triplet figure that Hirahara hears and uses to start his own solo. So sort of passing the baton with a herd and repeated music figure, which is always really cool. When yeah, very cool. Yeah. are paying attention to each other. Uh, and Hirahara really swings hard uh, in this one, uh, and the groove uh, instantly changes back uh, to Latin when they get to the melody repeat, uh, which is cool. Uh, and then, not to just repeat it, but there's a sudden pause uh, right before the last note. Uh, so, uh, nice variety, just mixing things up even when they're going back to the heads. So, uh, I can't really praise this recording enough. Uh, it's high yeah. energy, it's upbeat. It's got a great mix of uh, Latin feel tunes, post-bop idioms, things, but they're all really hard driving. Even the ballads are very expressive and show off another side of Rivera's tone uh, and a restrained quality that uh, matches his sort of uh, sort of testosterone-filled, uh, you know, regular playing. Uh, and you know, these positone guys, they always play really well together. And Rivera just notches right in. I mean, you couldn't ask for a better band to show off your tunes uh, with. Uh, I mean, this is great. Uh, his tunes are, original tunes are great. Uh, his own playing is versatile. He's got, you know, you know, this muscular side and also kind of a tender teddy bear kind of tone that he can do too. Uh, the only problem with this album it's too short. <laughs> yeah, the, I, the I solos could the go on. Thing. Yeah, mm. I want to hear more. Uh, stretch these out. It would be great to see this set live and uh, let these tunes stretch out to ten minutes each, uh, with guys uh, blowing their asses off. 
Uh, yeah, a lot of times I'll wait until the uh, the podcast episode to decide whether I want to, you know, add this jazz album to my collection. But this one, I didn't have to wait. I just knew yeah. right away I was hearing something really yeah. worthwhile and great. Yeah. Uh, the album felt it felt like it went by really fast, and it was over before I wanted it to be. And the solos, like as you said, were kept pretty short. Probably by they they probably decided this beforehand. They were going to get a certain uh, yeah. number of bars for the solo, but. Um, um, I could have used more. Everybody sounded good, like they had good ideas, and they really could have gone on. Yeah. Also, the album is really uplifting, okay? Mm -hmm. If you're really kind of not doing well, you might want to give this a listen, because music can instantly change your mood, and yeah. you want to feel good in life, you know? Because, yeah. you know, one day it ends, and then you feel good all the time. Yep. <laughs> I like it's, to think. <laughs> we'll see. I definitely have to put this into the uh, good good vibes category this album yeah. Uh, yeah latin rhythms will make you uh dance yeah, yeah in general um, yeah but this this is really yeah. special though i liked yeah. it a lot really good album yeah hmm. all right and to uh, round things out in our sexual experience uh this week hmm. uh we've got uh a switch to the ballad side uh and i wanted to do this because one of our favorite albums last year was uh nascentia by Steve Slagle. Uh, yeah, the only uh, the only album with a jazz suite on it that we liked. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> uh, which was really intense. Um, it was good. I yeah, liked it a lot. Creative, intense, exploratory. I bought it, I bought it too. Yeah. I have it in my collection. And so, uh, as a follow-up to that, uh, this year Slagle's diving into a ballad project, which is called Into the Heart of It. And this is on uh, Panorama Records here. And... So we've got uh, Slagle, who also plays flute, but we don't hear that uh, here. Here he's on alto and uh, soprano sax. He's also done all the arrangements and produced this album. Uh, on piano, we've got the great Bruce Barth. Uh, another uh, player we heard, I think, last week, uh, the great bassist uh, Ugono Okegwo, uh, we heard on the uh, Riverside recording. Uh, we've got Jason, is this Tyman, maybe? T-I-E-M-A-N-N. -N. I don't think it's Timon. Timon? Not sure. M-E-Timon? Timon, it looks like, on drums. Uh, Richard Sussman on synth organization, orchestration, rather, and drum programming on a few tracks. And uh, the other thing that uh, made me want to look at this recording, uh, Randy Brecker as guest on trumpet on yeah. uh, three tracks here. So, uh, now this is uh, Slagle's quotation about his approach to this album uh, so quote I really ruminated over this and I find it interesting to take on the challenge of trying to maintain one mood or texture across an entire program but I didn't want this to be a traditional ballads record where everything sounds the same and as much as I love many of them I definitely wasn't looking to recreate any of the classic ballads albums that I and many people grew up listening to. So, there are a number of originals here and some classics, but I wouldn't touch those classics if I wasn't going to try things differently. At this point, I can't help but impart my own slant on the music we play. So, uh, it's an album of all ballad music. Some of these are jazz standards, some of these are Slagle's uh, original compositions, and as I alluded to in the credits of the musicians, some of them are a little bit uh, 
different because they've got this synth orchestration and drum programming. Mm. Uh, so that was maybe the one thing about this uh, that I wasn't fully into, but I understand why he did that because to you know if you take a regular jazz recording uh you're gonna have uh you know in modern times so you'll have a couple jazz standards you'll have a a hard bopping number you'll have a ballad and a latin tune uh to have that mix right now if you're gonna focus all on any one element especially if that's ballads you run the risk of lulling uh your listening audience uh into sort of a fog, right, of uh, right. of slow things. So he's tried to present ballads with as much variety as possible. Uh, so let's see what goes on here. So we start out with uh, Blue in Green, uh, which jazz fans will know from uh, Bill Evans and Miles Davis. Uh, however, this one starts with synth and um so we've got a synth intro here. Slagle plays the melody on alto, rich kind of sound. The synth arrangement has a sort of electric piano sound, bass, and also a wash of uh, sort of background uh, fill. Is that, is that electric it. piano? That's not a real Fender Rhodes. That's part of the effects. Or, I, I don't think know. it's. I think it's synth, uh, huh. like you know a. I uh, synthesized electric piano sound uh, as part I of the I heard that as a Fender Rhodes. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it, it, that's, I, the, it might be. that's what it's know. based off from, right? Right. Uh, also, the uh, the Rhodes or electric piano effect has a kind of phaser effect in it. So it will also alternate between the left and right channels when you're listening. So you get this uh, sort of, yeah. uh, you know, uh, phased sound in and out that adds to the spaciousness of the arrangement. Uh, there's no drums or drum machine on this track. Uh, Slagle gets a crying tone on phrases. He also uses kind of pitch alterations to get extra expressions in his solo. Uh, there's a synth melodic line interlude uh, before Slagle adds uh, the final lines to the tune. So we're starting out with this sort of, uh, you know, synth backing uh, as one presentation of the ballad uh, format. Uh, track two, uh, how's your French, Mike? Yeah, Le Sucrier Velour, which means right. the, uh, the the Velvet Sugar Bowl. <laughs> God, I, yeah. I don't know why. <laughs> I, I don't think of Sugar Bowls as being velour or velvet or anything the like Queen's that. The Queen Suite. Uh, yeah. Duke Ellington and Billy Strayhorn tune, right? So okay. now we're here back to an all-acoustic jazz format, slow ballad swing. It's all about the phrasing and the slight accents to carry the melodic expression here on Slagle's alto solo. He bends up a note into a phrase beautifully. Uh, very nice. Bruce Barth is uh, light and tasty in his backing and also his piano solo with trickling lines of notes. Uh, Slagle comes back with a kind of dreamy intensity for a solo and he carries through with the melody again uh, to the end of the tune. Uh, track three, uh, Thelonious Monk's Reflections and Randy Brecker joins in here. Uh, he takes the melody first and then trades back and forth uh, with Slagle before they go unison on it together. Brecker takes the first solo. He's very chilled out here, but he has nice articulated phrases, lilting lines, trills, and half-valve effects. His tone is always great. Uh, very mellow here, though. 
Uh, Slagle has a passionate solo. He gets some high register tension. And then Brecker comes back in for trading off phrases a bit before they play together and alternate on a cadenza with some nice final doodling by uh, Brecker. Mm-hmm. Uh, four, a well-known jazz standard, My One and Only Love uh, by Guy Wood. Uh, original lyrics were by Robert Mellon. Uh, Slagle switches up to soprano here, and he plays the melody. And here we get kind of a funky drum machine and uh, Latin percussion beat uh, generated. Uh, the drum beat drops out for a bit with synth washes that come in for a section. Uh, then they return again. Slagle solos over them without any bass or harmony, uh, so he gets some freedom to explore his harmonic ideas. Also, he gets some high register runs before getting back to the melody. Track five is an original by Slagle, Into the Heart of It, the title track. Uh, Randy Brecker's back here. This has nicely harmonized horn parts. There are little phrases for each player to stand out. Uh, Slagle solos first. There's a soft burning intensity on these ballad tunes that shows up here, especially. Brecker's solo is super tasty. He leaves kind of expectant gaps between his phrases, comes up with lots of little melodic tasty treats in his lines. Uh, Barth gets a solo that really swings and digs into the rhythm. He lets it down easy, and the horns do an abbreviated unison melody uh, to the end. Track six, Stevie Wonder. Kiss Lonely Goodbye. A nice slow R&B beat with a rim click. Uh, Slagle makes the melody sing gently on the alto, uh, turning up the intensity on key phrases. He blows through to a solo working around the pitches and having kind of fun with the lines and then back to the melody without a break. So he just, this is one continuous sax exposition on this tune. Track seven is another Slagle original, CC, that's S-I comma S. E-E. The piano intro on this original is nice with a kind of bossa type feel beat to it. Uh, Slago uh, is playing soprano on this one. It's got a breezy melody with uplifting interval jumps in it. Uh, Slago plays more serpentine lines in his solos, but he does keep the interval idea going uh, as he varies his articulation uh, with some staccato notes here, too. Uh, Hazeltine plays a perfectly matched solo here. Fluid lines balanced out by some percussive uh, chord builds-ups. And then uh, Slagle takes the melody one more time to finish it. Uh, track 8, a jazz standard by Tad Dameron, If You Could See Me Now. He's, uh, Slagle's back on alto for this slow, sling, slow swing rendition of this standard tune. Uh, he plays the melody pretty much straight up with a few upper register raspy notes that sound uh, intense and cool. Uh, Timon keeps nice brush textures stirring behind Slagle's solo uh, that gets bluesy in spots. Uh, then Hazeltine gets a nice extended solo here. Uh, tasty as ever, never overplaying. He's the perfect sideman for a project like this. Uh, he will add uh, just the right added elements without ever overpowering uh, the uh, main performer in a piece. Uh, After the final melody statement, Slagle finishes it off with a tasty cadenza. Uh, Track 9, The Four Margarets, another Slagle original. A synth and soprano sax on this one. Uh, Again, Sussman leaves some spaces free from the 
synth wash to let Slagle's tone stand alone. It's a pretty melody. Slagle keeps his solo lines uh, melodic, uh, focusing on phrasing. And we end up the recording with another final mm. Slagle original called Big Mac. And this is, uh, or is it Big Macs? Is it plural? Anyway, this is I think it's just Big Mac, like Big the Mac. Hamburger. This is uh, referring to uh, the Big Macs of jazz: uh, McCoy, Tyner, Andy McKee, and Jackie McLean uh, influences wow. on his playing. Uh, so this one is not a ballad. <laughs> so yeah. we end up with kind of a burning I'm tune. It's a surprised hard... by this. It kind of. Yeah. Took me out of my uh, state there. Yeah. It's a hard bop swinging tune. Uh, Randy Becker is back for this one too. The horn lines are unique in that they're unison and then they split on the final uh, long note of the, each phrase. Uh, so it kind of uh, brings you together and then apart. Uh, Slagle solos first. He digs deep into the lower register a lot. Uh, he gets some more aggressive tones and phrases uh, out. It's sort of cathartic after all those ballad <laughs> playing i think hmm. uh they get to yeah. unwind and uh, blow out a bit here uh brecker starts his own solo working outside of uh, the chords a bit uh and then on the higher extensions of the uh chord harmonies uh, he builds up to a good climax he shows off some of that laser tone uh that i always love when he gets up high it's like this uh, can cut sheet metal with that kind of tone that he gets on the <laughs> trumpet uh and uh, Hazeltine is a little more aggressive in his own solo here, too. Check out the impressive uh, percussive chords and left-hand work that he keeps going on with his right-hand lines. Uh, then the players um, hit the melody again, but give time and some drum solo uh, work time on a pause before the final note. So this is a big contrast to uh, last year's uh, Nascentia. But it shows another side of Slagle's playing style. I'm not really sure I cared for the synth numbers as much, but I understand he's trying to add variety to arrangements on an all-ballad program. Uh, so overall, an enjoyable recording, uh, tasty playing uh, by Slagle. Uh, he gets sort of a vocal quality, interesting pitch work on his melodic interpretations. And you've got the added... Uh, qualities of Hazeltine as an accompanist with Shining Spots and then the great uh, Randy Brecker uh, too. So well worth a listen, I thought. Yeah, um, I liked I liked this a bit. Um, I think he certainly succeeded in uh, making his uh, ballads album, you know, have a variety to right. it. Yeah, but to be honest, I'm perfectly happy to listen to an album of ballads if it's by musicians that I really like. Right, exactly. And uh, I'm really... Yeah, I'm really on board with what you said here. Um, I think uh, the electronics kind of took, for me personally, took away from it. I mean, they certainly added variety. <laughs> yeah. Track, track five, Into the Heart. Was that it? No. Sorry, track four, My One and Only Love, with the right. electronic drums kind of really put me back in the 1980s. Yeah. <laughs> you know, with that kind of like measured yeah. drumming and things like that. Yeah. Um, yeah, this was a real departure from last week's last year's album. I was happy to hear uh, Bill Barth on the uh, piano. We don't hear enough of him. Yeah, he's so yeah, tasty. I mean, he's so good. Just great. Yeah, he doesn't. He doesn't. He, I think his last solo album was 2014. Unless he's done something oh, okay. I haven't recognized. But uh, you know, and he doesn't appear as a sideman enough either. Yeah. I'm just kind of wondering what he's up to. I'd like to hear more from him. 
Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's it. Yeah, and the Big Mac at the end kind of really surprised me. I was like, well, if you're doing an album of ballads, <laughs> yeah, well, why not uh, yeah. stick to it? Um, yeah. So this was, I don't know, it wasn't really my thing. I mean, I like the playing a lot, though, of course. Right. You know, especially Barth and uh, Randy Brecker and Slagle himself. You know? Yeah. Yeah, I just, I'm, I'm someone... Uh, who you know? If I never heard another drum machine, I wouldn't be disappointed. Uh, yeah, or another synthesizer. You know, I'm not really too crazy about them. I, mean, yeah. I think as you get older, you want to hear more acoustic sounds. You know, just especially it's kind of naturally like, made. You know, an album that we're going to definitely have to talk about. And well, you told me you ordered it. Is uh, the new um, Delvon Lamar trio? Oh yeah, I'm looking forward um, to this. I mean, I could so, hear it now, but I just haven't waiting for the CD because I want to sit down and do my ritual. <laughs> when you hear those those guys uh, lay down a, a groove, right? Yeah. And um, I understand that they record, uh, you know, as live as possible without headphones uh, and they keep all the, you know, any imperfections are sort of kept in that. Uh, you can never recreate that kind of uh, natural organic groove with a drum machine. Uh and uh, yeah, I, I just I've heard so many drum machine things uh, I, I think over I, my life that I, I've just especially like, in yeah. the '80s. I mean, I think I was done with them after yeah. that. I mean, they were good for us because we were learning music then. I mean, I was in bands; we would program yeah, drum. Yeah, yeah sure. I used it for different things. But now and, uh, I kind of yeah, I don't even like programming. Like Garage Band, I can't even use that. I'm, <laughs> I just don't yeah. want to do it. Yeah. You know. So yeah, so we, we've got you know some variety here but with this level of uh, musicianship I could have just gone all acoustic uh, and at at my uh, age and decibel hours on my eardrums that's all fine with me to keep everything uh, organic and acoustic but uh, right. yeah uh, Slagle's a real uh, master of saxophone playing especially in phrasing and melodic interpretation uh, so this is well worth hearing you know nice working through these ballads and I I like these compositions of his own I didn't realize he had this many original ballad compositions ready to uh, kind of go out and they're they're attractive too um, you know so how do you have good sax you got a lot of variety we've had some yeah there you go Eastern European kind of sax we've got some Latino sax and now we've got some you know ballady sax uh, and, and just listen to the adult music podcast and you'll get good sax yeah I've got a lot more I've got a, a whole I've got two pages of sax releases just from this year so oh wow um, boy you know but this, the focus for this program was uh, variety yeah um, I guess yeah you know, so we've got uh, all kinds of things here uh, boy I don't know interesting uh, program I gotta say yeah kind of interesting I've got mm. uh, the other thing I've got a, a lot of uh Trumpet and trombone. Oh, wow. Yeah. So we're going to go from sexy to horny? Yeah, I guess so. Uh, maybe okay. we should have done them in the other, in we'll the other order. titles for that, too. But yeah. uh, I've got a couple pages of uh, trumpet releases. I'll have to get either variety or the best ones out of, and I think I've got enough for a trombone episode already, as well as a jazz vocal episode lined up. And... I've got more piano than I could do probably for a whole year already, so I'm going to really oh, have to pick up the best ones. let's do one of those, because I think ones. I can yeah. do a, a piano episode sometime soon. Oh, okay. So definitely... I've got something from last year I want to do, and then there are two releases this year I want to do Piano, as well. trumpet, vocal, probably trombone, and yeah, 
this endless sex too. So, hmm. oh wow, there's just recordings coming out more than I can keep up. The, you know, I got to tell you, for the last three weeks, I've I w- I'm an early riser, right? I wake up at 4.30 every day. Wow. And when I have days I do, off- I do that in the summer because here in Japan, there's no daylight yeah, the, savings. The sun comes up. So the sun's like, up at like 4.30. At 4 o'clock. But <laughs> I'm always summer, up. that is. Yeah. You know, whenever I say, uh, I say to my wife, we're going to sleep late tomorrow, right? And we say, yep, five. <laughs> so five is late. <laughs> but uh, I get up. And uh, I have my coffee and I spend the first 60 to 90 minutes just looking through the, you know, the new releases every day and just, you know, sort of saying, okay, add them to my list or not. Well, every day I've been adding like at least a half dozen. And so now my my list is really big. It's going to have to be pared down to... The, the best well, recording. Oh, it's always good to have too many. At, yeah. at the moment, I have too little because I'm going to run out. Oh. But there, there's stuff coming, so I've got right. like, things yeah. coming out, and I still have stuff. I'm not sure I can do if it yeah. comes down to it. So I feel like if if uh, somehow we were able to, uh, you know, do this as our main income source, I could do this every day, and I wouldn't run out of recordings at this point. So. Uh-huh. I'd, I'd like to do this as my main income source. That'd be great. We could do it live every day. Yeah, That'd be cool. Yeah. I have another possible income source. It's either this or get this. This is my idea for an income source. All right. It's going to be buried at the end of the program. <laughs> Some people aren't going to hear it. Um, I want his, his, I think I should be employed as an Olympics last place finisher. Here's Here's what I mean. Okay. Like imagine you have like a a race, like a you know hundred yard dash, right? Okay. Everybody's like trained really hard for this. These are the best athletes in the world, mm-hmm. but one of them is going to come in last, <laughs> right? Okay, so I, think be I think I'm getting this. Yeah, yeah. So you see, this person did all this training, and they wound up like finishing last, and they may as well not have trained because you know right. they would have finished last anyway. So that's where you so, come in. This is where I come in. I come in and I finish last, so they don't have to be have, suffer the embarrassment right. of finishing last. I mean, it's win-win. I get in shape, you know, because I'm running all these races, which I'm right. not doing now. Um, so, and you get a little, you get a little stipend for that. And you know, and the last place finisher isn't embarrassed. They didn't finish last. I can see how this could work. Yeah, as yeah. long as it's like in the right to the Olympic Committee, non like <laughs> contact and combat combative sports like boxing and things. No, like that. well, <laughs> no, it wouldn't be in that. Yeah. It would be in racing and stuff like that. Maybe, judo you know, so. or something. Yeah, racing. No, I wouldn't do judo. I see that. No. Yeah, you could. Well, I who could comes see, in like, last in judo? You just get eliminated. I don't want to be in that. Holy <laughs> cow! There he is in last place, <laughs> coming around with a big grin on his face. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And he'd be happy, you know. He's running for that Unless, paycheck. Yeah, on the last swimming <laughs> lap. And there yeah. you are. Yeah. Right. <laughs> they they're shutting the they're shutting the lights in the in the pool and like everybody's filing yeah. out and I'm still trying to reach the end of the lap, you know, and kinda <laughs> you know. Yeah. Yeah, you I know. can see that. I can see that as working out, you know. Yeah. Yeah, this is what this is what we're going to be reduced to if uh, <laughs> listeners don't uh, support us on the <laughs> Adult right. Music Podcast. So please keep listening, everybody. Please keep listening. So this has been episode fifty-two of Adult Music, the podcast with music for the mature mind. Uh, as always, please do like and subscribe on whatever platform you're on. We'd love to hear from you if you have any direct comments or questions. That's at Adult Music Podcast, all one word, at gmail dot com. And we'll be back again next week, episode 53. 
more classical and jazz releases for you. And until then, keep listening. We'll see you again next time. Thank you.